Hey, Deserving Listeners, it's just me today. Today's episode is a deep dive on codependency. This episode is just for patrons of the podcast, but I have a little introduction here. I have never experienced a more confused term in my field, meaning that people confuse this term in the lay public, on the internet, but also in my own discipline. I will be working with colleagues or students or fellow professors, and I will hear most of the time, this is just anecdotal, people using the word codependency drastically wrong. And I'm always amazed by this. You know, it's one thing for the public to use codependency wrong, because, you know, it's the public and the internet is misleading them entirely. But for clinicians and professors to misuse the word codependency is frankly embarrassing. It's like there are books that you can look into and read the definition. You you can go in the glossary and look up codependency and it will not say the way that people are using it. I mean, long story short, people are generally using it as a synonym for dependent personality disorder. We already have a word for dependent personality disorder. It's called dependent personality disorder. And this has trickled down to the lay public, or maybe it's the opposite direction. I'm going to get into it in this episode. I I did a mini deep dive on the history of the term, and I think I have a you know a grasp on why we as a discipline and also as the public is it just so um, ignorant about what codependency actually means. Also, in doing this deep dive, I found that codependency is much more interesting than I thought. Uh, you know, as I, I use the, the term codependency occasionally, but not often. But when I do, I, I had a, you know, an understanding of the concept, but it's much deeper than I thought originally. And after doing this deep dive, I've come to consider codependency to be another personality disorder. And in this lecture, I'm going to be making a case for uh, including this. Maybe not the DSM, because the DSM isn't the end-all and be-all of wisdom in our field. For example, passive-aggressive personality disorder or sadistic personality disorder or psychopathic personality disorder. I still use these. These are not in the DSM, but they are in the literature. And I would say that codependency is a personality disorder. And and I'm going to make an argument for that because we have other words that describe non-personality disorder codependent behavior, which I'm going to get into. You know, there's things like uh, over-functioning or just simply enabling or what we call pro-dependence as opposed to codependence or um, being addicted to relationships. You know, there's all these different terms that kind of get mishmashed into codependency. And I want to get into that. So, yeah, uh, this is going to be a long one. I'm going to be talking about the definition. I, I've I've made my own definition. I'm going to be I'm going to be giving other definitions that other people have proposed, and there are a lot, and they are varied. I'm going to give the feminist critique of codependency, uh, which is valid. I'm going to obviously describe codependency, the core components, other possible components. I'm going to talk about the results of codependency, what kind of outcomes, like negative outcomes that are a result of being a codependent person. And I think most importantly, which I always find to be the most satisfying portion of these kinds of lectures that I do on the podcast, I'm going to go into the types of codependency because I think this elucidates the 
I have three different types that I've come up with. And I think it, it really helps to understand the types because they are different, but they share a core foundation that I'll get into. I'm going to talk about the cause, what the research says and what my own opinion is as to what causes codependency in people. I'm going to delineate it between, as I said, over-functioning, dependent personality disorder, simply enabling, pro-dependence, addiction to relationships, just being in a bad relationship, and two people who are pathologically dependent on each other. I'm going to talk about proposed criteria and other measures. You know, what is in the research literature regarding codependency? What are the proposed DSM criteria? What are the um, psychological instruments that we will administer to determine how codependent you are? And if you're following along at home, you can actually tally your score and maybe figure out how to co codependent you are. Uh, of course, you know, it's just... Um, you'd probably want to seek out professional help if you actually did uh, have a confident score. But anyway... I'm also going to give a lot of examples because, again, I think that's where the real understanding of codependency comes from is talking about actual human beings that I know or have treated or have been in popular culture. At the end, I'm going to go over the history of the term and uh, help us understand how we got to where we are. It goes back to you know the early 20th century, as a lot of things in our field do. And then I'm going to end with treatment, how to treat, how to change one's codependency. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist and a professor. As I said earlier, this episode is just for patrons of the podcast. So if you're not a patron of the podcast and you want to hear this whole episode on codependency, you want to go to patreon.com and become a patron. When you become a patron, you'll gain access to this episode along with hundreds of others of our best episodes, arguably other deep dives. Also, know that a portion of your pledge goes towards various charities that we support and also goes towards scholarships. We've given out, I think, over ten or $12,000 uh, you know, because of you, patrons who have already been, who've already signed up. A portion of your pledge has gone toward giving scholarships to uh, students who are making a difference in the world and plan to do wonderful things for, you know, society and, and people. And so uh, thank you so much for being a patron. And if you're not a patron, uh, you know, uh, it's up to you, but uh, uh, you can do that now if you want. <laughs> All right. All right. Welcome to the Patron Zone patrons. Thank you so much for becoming a patron. Super, super cool of you. And just a little plug that if you want to become an upper tier patron or an annual patron, uh, that helps us out. And for those who have already done that, thank you so much. Uh, thank you, thank you, thank you. All right, so let's talk about the definition here. As I said before, the definition has been quite muddled and varied and no, and not very consistent. There are many different definitions uh, even in the clinical literature, but particularly in the lay public and on the internet, which I'll get into in a second. And that's just not my opinion. Several literature reviews show that the concept of codependency is not defined well. It's not clear, not consistent. And there uh, isn't really a clear theory of personality, uh, meaning that they don't have a clear mechanism from which codependent behaviors emerge from, which is really common in my field, particularly when it's DSM-oriented, because that's not its purpose. Because you can't um, look inside someone's mind, you can only look at their behavior. 
But in this lecture, I hope to rectify that. I want to provide a, a clear theory as to a uh, clear definition and a clear theory as to why codependency uh, emerges. And my the guiding principle that I have is I want to follow the original intent of the term, or at least what I think emerged as the main intent of the term codependency. And also, I wanted to find something that hasn't really been given a word. You know, there's a lot of things in our field that don't have words, and I think it's important that they have words. You know, that's why I try to use terms like relational traumas, because, you know, we don't really have wor a better word than relational trauma or narcissistic personality spectrum, you know, th these kinds of things. Um, I, I have to invent these words, seemingly invent, because they are ideas. Another one that I found myself saying because we just didn't have a word for it or a, or a very satisfying word, and particularly in the DSM, is trauma reactivity. You, you'll, you'll, you might hear me say, particularly if you're a student of mine, you'll, you'll hear me say like just general trauma reactivity because a lot of the reactivity that people have from early childhood trauma are not included in the DSM. You know, things like over-sexualization or shutting down your emotions. Uh, you might not suffer from PTSD or complex PTSD, but you might have some trauma reactivity. And so uh, I don't know if I invented that term, but anyway, the point is, is that I want to propose a codependent personality disorder because I think it's important to label this. And there, you know, there seems to be some empirical support that the, the personality exists. So, um, yeah, it, I think, you know, I was trying to figure out why it's ignored by mainstream psychological researchers and by academics, uh, because, you know, in the lay public, people talk about codependency all the time. I mean, I would say it's one of the top 10 uh, terms that in psychology is, is thrown around by the, by the lay public. So why as a field do we ignore it so so severely i mean it's discussed kind of but the fact that we don't have a consensus regarding what the def even what the meaning of codependency is in our field i mean that tells you that there just isn't enough attention and and the i would speculate there are two reasons one is that it it is in the chemical dependency world and traditionally and this is well known that those of us in psychology and marriage and family therapy and counseling and psychiatry, we tend to, as a culture, look down on those in chemical dependency. You know, they're not real clinicians. They're, you know, they're just helping people get sober. There, there's this classism, if you will, in my field. And if you're in the chemical dependency world, you definitely have probably experienced that. Whereas, uh, you know, chemical dependency professionals, those who help people with substance use disorders are, you know, they're just as important and crucial and intelligent and wise and, you know, um, professional as we are, but somehow uh, we look down on them. And so I think that that's one reason why the, and codependency is, is a word and a concept that comes from the chemical dependency world. Uh, is it, what did I say? The codependency comes from chemical dependency world. And so uh, our field, you know, psychology, other research areas will ignore it for that reason. Another reason is that it has to do with families and family systems. You know, the idea that 
someone suffering from an addiction or a behavioral problem or an issue would be intertwined with someone in their family like the codependent. You know, if you have an alcoholic and then you have the, the codependent that goes along with the alcoholic, it is a systemic concern, a family concern. And as a marriage and family therapist myself, I can tell you that in the, you know, in the rankings of um, prestige among the mental health professionals, we're, we're definitely close to the bottom. I mean, you could argue that social workers are even below us in terms of like general prestige points or something. You know, at the top, you got your psychiatrist and your psychologist. Step down, you have, I don't know, doctoral level counselors. I don't know. But at the very least, uh, I know that family therapy, probably art therapy might be, you know, tends to get crapped on and, and drama therapists tend to get crapped on sometimes. Um, but anyway, uh, marriage and family therapy and, and family therapy ideas in general tend to be uh, ignored because of, I think, li- just prestige reasons. And I guess I could extend it to the patriarchy in our uh, in our culture, in our field that uh, privileges a kind of white male independent um, uh, you know, idea about what's good in life and it's very focused on the brain and on individual psychology instead of like the collective and how systems come together and how relationships are important. And so, I don't know, those are my guesses that codependence uh, emerged and or is seen as a part of the chemical dependency world and the family therapy world and therefore is ignored because those fields tend to be, um, I don't know, seen as not as cool. So along those lines, if you're a doctoral student and you're looking for a good dissertation topic, I would imagine that codependency would be a, a good one because the one of the big pitfalls of a dissertation idea is that if you go into an area that has been already researched a lot, then you're not going to be you're gonna, you're not going to have a lot of options regarding. Uh, what your dissertation topic is going to be on. And if you go into an area that isn't traditionally researched that much, then you tend to get a lot of attention because you're like one of the first people that's starting to take it seriously. So anyway, I, I would recommend that as one of your options. All right. So before going into the definitions, I want to just ask ask the question, why do we even care about de- definitions? Why do we derive definitions? Why am I in this deep dive at the beginning, even trying to establish an, a definition and critiquing others. Well, because um, it, it's important for us to establish definitions so that we do not misunderstand each other. If I am with uh, you know colleagues or even the lay public, and I use the word codependent or codependency, there is no way that I know that the other person understands what I'm saying because we do not have a clear definition. You know, if I use the word automobile and in our culture, somehow we had like five definitions, like one is an actual automobile and others, it means a tree and to others, it means like sand. Then what, why do we have language in the first place? You know, we communication is important to understand each other is important and so when I use the word codependency, we need to understand what we're talking about. And if we don't have a clear consensus definition, then why do we have the word at all? <laughs> you know, it's just, it's just a, a word that 
is used for literally 20 different definitions and that are different from each other. So it's like, let's just get rid of the word, you know, um, like gaslighting is start, starting to become that, honestly, <laughs> and narcissism is starting to become that. But anyway, um, also, when we establish a clear definition, this this means we can now research the topic, right? If you don't have a definition and you don't have a clear measure to, you know, get at that, meaning a, you know, a survey or some kind of assessment measure, then there's no way to research it. You know, the only reason why we know the rates of depression is because we have a clear definition of what major depressive disorder is. You know, the only reason why um, when I say so-and-so is depressed and you understand what that means. It's because there's there's only one definition of that. Now, there's some variance there. Some people think it means just crying all the time. But anyway, at least within the clinical field, people generally understand what depression means. In the clinical field, people do not understand what codependency means. The other reason why we need a clear definition is for normalization. You know, some of you listening to this podcast might have benefited from learning about something. You know, like when I did the avoidant personality disorder deep dive and the dependent personality disorder deep dive people reached out to me and said oh my god i had no idea that's what i have you know i have avoidant i've never even heard of avoidant personality disorder and when you did that deep dive i was like oh my god that's me and uh, you know that makes me feel better to know that it's not just me you know this is a thing this is a known human thing and there's a reason why i have this so you know it's important for us, it's a function of these labels that we have clear definitions so that people can be given a chance to be seen by us. You know, otherwise, you know, imagine if we had no word for depression and all these depressed people were walking around and they'd come into our offices and they're like, what's wrong with me? And we're just like, uh, I don't know, you just like lack of motivation or something. Imagine if we didn't have a term for that. Well, uh, there's a lot of psychological conditions that are common to people enough that warrants a clear definition, and I propose codependency as one of them. The other thing is it, help tre it helps treatment, right? When someone comes in to me and they exhibit codependency and I have a clear idea of what it is and the causes and the research, then it really helps me in terms of assessing them and also treating them because I, I know what's going on. I have a clear conceptualization of what is going on. And, and honestly, doing this deep dive really has helped me. You know, the, the next client that comes to me that has some codependent features, I, I feel much more equipped uh, than I did before, for sure. Um, the other thing that I want to talk about is how do we derive definitions? You know, it's not like we have Webster to depend on, right? Like, how does the field of psychology, the field of psychotherapy, even determine what a definition is, you know, because it's, again, there's not a board of people that determine these kinds of things. Um, well, the answer is, is that it's through consensus, right? And it's not through the lay public, right? <laughs> we, the public, cannot define, say, what cancer means, right? That only uh, you know, within the medical field, and particularly people who work with cancer, uh, the researchers, they are allowed to determine consensus, the consensus of a definition, uh, uh, you know, so we as a field in psychotherapy and chemical dependency, more broadly, uh, we need to come up with a consensus, it's up to us, and we have not done that. And that's, there's something wrong with that. <laughs> 
Like, come on. Um, you know, along those lines, if we allowed the lay public to define things, then they would define schizophrenia as meaning dissociative identity disorder, right? Because a lot of people would be like, oh my God, I'm so schizophrenic. And on one hand, I'm like this. On the other hand, I'm like that. And it's like, um, that's not schizophrenia, but that's what the lay public believes. There's far more people that have a wrong definition of schizophrenia than right definition. And I'm saying right and wrong because, you know, in the clinical field that understands schizophrenia, they define it a particular way. And the public does not understand that definition. So, uh, you know, uh, I'm I'm content and okay with saying that even though there might be a minority of people in our field defining something, that's okay, and we impose it on everyone else. I'm okay with that. <laughs> in, in this instance, you know, there are psychological concepts that we cannot um, trust the public with. Anyway, all right. So let's go into my definition. So th this is and it'll probably change over time, but. As I was doing the deep dive, I, I kept coming back to this section in my notes and sort of tweaking this definition. So I have a long definition and a short one. So I'll give the long one first. Codependent personality is characterized by the development of schemas that defensively compel the individual to enmesh with and uphold the behavior of someone with a chronic behavior problem such as addiction, irresponsibility, or underfunctioning. Uh, often I will call this person the person of concern or the underfunctioner. So you have the codependent, and then you have this other person that they're concerned with. And I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of back and forth between two terms. The, I, I, I want to call that person the person of, like the, you know, the alcoholic is the person of concern or they're the underfunctioner. And I, I might kind of use those interchangeably as, as we move forward. Um, this can be any type of relationship. You know, it could be spousal, child, parent, work, friend, etc. So again, let's let's review re re this. Codependent personality. So I'm starting off the, right off the bat with saying, this is a personality, a personality cluster, a personality disorder, you could say that. Uh, codependent personality so it's not just a behavior, because later I'll get into differentiating codependent personality from like overfunctioning, which which I will argue is codependent behavior without the personality. But I'll delineate that later. But anyway, codependent personality is characterized by the development of schemas. So I'm including right in the definition that codependent personality is developed you know, through childhood, through, you know, into adulthood by the development of certain deep beliefs about who you are and how the world works. Codependent personality is characterized by the development of schemas that defensively compel. So again, you know, it can, it's a compulsion that the person will have to enmesh with someone else. And they do that defensively. It's not just like they're compelled to enmesh with the alcoholic because, they just want to. It's because they're they're defending themselves against something, which I'll get into later. Uh, codependent personality is, is characterized by the development of schemas that defensively compel the individual to enmesh with and uphold the behavior of someone with a chronic behavioral problem, such as addiction, irresponsibility, or underfunctioning. So at the end, there, you know, I have chronic behavioral problem, and I, you know, that was the best phrase that I could come up with such as addiction, irresponsibility, or underfunctioning. 
Now, irresponsibility and underfunctioning are pretty broad terms. You know, addiction, it's pretty easy to identify that, but you know, how do we determine irresponsibility or underfunctioning? I'll, I'll get into that later. But but just a snippet, you know, that could involve being narcissistic. If you have narcissistic personality, that can lead to irresponsibility and underfunctioning. If you have dependent personality disorder, that can lead to irresponsibility and underfunctioning and might compel a codependent to um, help you, you know, that kind of thing. Um, but going to the middle of the definition, so the codependent personality individual will enmesh with the person with a problem and they will uphold the behavior of. So it's both those things. They'll both enmesh with that person, fuse with that person, and enable that person. Okay, so the shorter definition that I have here is codependent personality is characterized by the need to become enmeshed with someone else's ongoing destructive behavior problem. So this is, you know, uh, the shorter definition isn't really encapsulated, obviously, but I, I think, it, you know, if, if we're looking for a really concise way of describing what I think is happening is it's the need to become enmeshed with someone else's ongoing destructive behavioral problem. And actually, as I say that out loud, I don't, I don't, I don't like it with someone else. I'm going to change it with someone else who has an ongoing destructive behavior problem. Yeah, I think that's probably in met become enmeshed with no uh, <laughs> codependent personality is characterized by the need to manage someone else who has an ongoing destruct. Okay, I think I don't know. I, I think that's bad. Codependent personality is characterized by the need to manage someone else who has an ongoing destructive behavior problem. Okay, yeah, I mean. No one sentence or, you know, short definition is going to encapsulate everything, but I, I feel pretty good about that. The need to manage, that's a big part of it. Codependency is the need to manage someone else who has an ongoing problem. All right. Again, I'm saying it's codependent personality disorder because rather than just a behavioral pattern, because we already have words for just the behaviors. So and I'll talk more about this later, but a personality disorder is a pervasive part of who you are. It distorts how you see the world, how you see yourself. And from those distortions, it will compel odd behaviors or destructive behaviors. Whereas just acting codependent might actually just be temporary, or you might be confused, or you might be pushed into being quote unquote codependent. And I'm going to delineate that uh, situation into a different set of words, over-functioning, enabling, this kind of thing, pro-dependence, this sort of thing. Um, the reason why I want codependent uh, to be a personality disorder is because, like I said earlier, we have words for just the behaviors. And I think that in my experience, the people who I would label as like quintessential codependent people they are codependent independent of the person of concern, meaning that if they get a divorce from the alcoholic, they will meet another alcoholic or they'll meet someone else who also needs to be managed. And when the person of concern, when the underfunctioner gets better, the codependent person is still suffering because of these schemas that are at play. 
you know, it's pervasive. There's deep schemas. It's across all relationships. It's not just like dependent on a particular relationship. The, the reason why I do this is, you know, I was thinking about my own life and, you know, I've lived a long life and I, I've, I've been involved, you know, I've had people close to me who have had addictions and this sort of thing. And when I looked at some of the definitions, I was a codependent person because I, I was just merely involved with people who had substance use problems or some other kind of a problem. And that didn't make any sense to me because in, in that way, we're all codependent. <laughs> and, and then it just loses its meaning. Now, maybe that's helpful. You know, maybe it's more helpful to just to say codependency is just like a temporary, potentially temporary thing. But I don't, it doesn't seem very useful. Particularly because we have other words, you know, we have enabling and overfunctioning and prodependence and this sort of stuff. So, uh, so you know, I want to make codependent into a personality disorder um, and link it with the underfunctioner for sure. Uh, but anyway, I'll get more into that later. Okay, so let's read some other definitions, and these are uh, definitions from the clinical literature and also from. Online, But most of these definitions are from the clinical literature, which will give you an idea to how varied these def and how bad these definitions are. And I'm not going to provide the citation because I don't want to humiliate people. <laughs> but these are, like I said, most of these are from the clinical literature, meaning peer-reviewed journal articles. All right. The first definition I want to go over here are is, um, quote, People who are involved in relationships with either drug addicted or alcohol addicted spouses or lovers. End quote. Again, just want to read this. This is a very common definition, by the way. Quote, people who are involved in relationships with either drug addicted or alcohol addicted spouses or lovers. End of quote. This is a ridiculous <laughs> definition, I just have to say, but it's so common. So if you're just involved in a relationship with someone who has a substance abuse problem, you are codependent just being involved with. So, so you marry someone who doesn't have any kind of, any kind of an addiction and over time, you know, because of their past traumas or something, they develop an addiction and they, they hide it from you. And, you know, they're using cocaine while you're not watching or something. And, just being married to that person makes you a codependent person. That that doesn't make any sense, <laughs> right? Um, also, it limits it to spouses or lovers, which is you know a common scenario. But you can certainly be a codependent person to a friend or to a coworker or a boss or your own child or to your parent. Um, so there's that. The other thing is that this kind of is in line with one of the major critiques of the term codependency, which it basically just shames those who are victims. You know, when when you are married to someone who has a, who has a substance abuse problem or a behavioral addiction or a personality disorder, for that matter, you're often suffering because of your partner's problems. And to just label you as the codependent, meaning that you're part of the problem, Without any investigation. Now, maybe you are part of the problem, which we'll get into later. But just the fact that you're married to this person makes you codependent and part of the problem. You know, there's, there, there's something wrong with that. Um, so, yeah. All right. Another definition. here. So, again, I just want to read how dumb this definition. Quote, people who are involved in relationships with either drug addicted or alcohol addicted spouses or lovers. 
end, end of quote. End of definition. That's the definition. <laughs> That's just ridiculous. Uh, another one here. Quote, characterized by excessive emotional or psychological reliance on a partner, typically one who requires support on account of an illness or addiction. End of quote. This one is also ridiculous. Uh, and this was also very common. So let's let's read this again. Characterized by excessive emotional or psychological reliance on a partner. All right. So just chiming in here. This is dependency. You know, this is dependent personality disorder. We have a word for that. It's very different from co- dependent personality disorder is being overly dependent. And I've, did a, I've done a whole deep dive on that. The schema of a dependent personality disordered individual is I cannot do things on my own. I, I need my you know, helpful person to do everything for me because I'm, I'm incompetent. A codependent person is not necessarily, in fact, they often do not feel that way. Anyway, but let's read this again. Characterized by excessive emotional or psychological reliance on a partner. Okay, that's dependency. That's not codependency. Um, typically one who requires support on account of an illness or addiction. So <laughs> um, this they have it both ways. So they're basically saying, if you have excessive reliance on your partner, um, and typically your partner relies on you for support because of their addiction, how does that make sense? It you rely, you're dependent on your partner who was dependent on you. <laughs> now sometimes that can happen, but not usually. Usually, when you have a, the codependent person, is usually the overfunctioner. They're the one who is actually a lot more responsible um, and not overly reliant. Now, you could, I guess, stretch the word reliance into like fusion or lack of differentiation. But anyway, um, another definition here someone who cannot function on their own and whose thinking and behavior is instead organized around another person, process, or substance. Again, ridiculous. This is dependence with a, you know, a, a dash of codependence. So again, someone who cannot function on their own, that's dependent personality disorder. <laughs> that's so to cut to the chase a little bit here, the problem with the word codependent is that we're referring to a different kind of dependence. Okay. Dependent personality disorder is referring to excessively dependent on someone else. You as a 35-year-old woman do not feel you can make decisions on your own. You can't live on your own. You don't think you can make your own decisions about your career or what to eat or how to dress or anything. You're dependent on someone else. You can't make independent decisions. That's dependent personality disorder. Codependent, it sounds so similar to dependent personality disorder that people mix them up. But codependent refers to a totally different dependent definition, a definition of dependency, which is dependency on substances. So back in the day, and this is skipping forward to the history section a little bit, you you had people who were dependent on alcohol, and then they you know uh, expanded it to chemical dependency, meaning drugs and, and alcohol. And so you had the dependent person. They are the alcoholic. They're the addict. They're dependent on the substance to survive. They physically and psychologically are dependent on cocaine or heroin or something. And then 
they zoomed out a little bit on the system and said, there's this, you know, often their spouses are kind of like co-pilots. They're, they're the co-alcoholic or the codependent. So with codependent, we're referring to dependency on substances. With dependent personality disorder, we're talking about dependency on people, on others. But they get smashed together because of the word dependency, because there are multiple, you know, you know, distinctly two, you know, particularly two distinct definitions in the clinical literature, what, what dependency is referring to. So that's why I think we have it all mixed up. But anyway, again, getting back to this definition, someone who cannot function on their own and whose thinking and behavior is instead organized around another person, process or substance. So again, you hear that, you know, they can't think on their own and is instead organized around another person, process, or substance. You know, again, one thing, it's too general. One, it includes dependent personality disorder. But someone whose behavior is organized around a substance, you know, that sounds like someone suffering from addiction. So are you talking, is, are you saying codependent people are, are people who suffer from addiction? Um, so, yeah, but there are, there, you know, there are hints of things in these definitions that I can agree with, but which I'll get into later. Another definition here. Dysfunctional pattern of relating to others with an extreme focus outside of oneself, lack of expression of feelings, and a personal meaning derived from relationship with others. Okay, this definition is getting closer to what I think is a helpful definition. So let's, let's look at this again. Dysfunctional pattern of relating to others. So, okay, makes sense. With an extreme focus outside of the self. All right, that's actually in line with codependency. It's not like the core, but, you know, it's a part of it. A lack of expression of feelings. Eh, I think we're getting away. Certainly some codependents do lack expression of feelings, but not everybody. And then the last clause here, which is good, a personal meaning derived from relationship with others. Almost there, but it would be better if it was a personal meaning derived from relationship with others who have problems, <laughs> which you know, anyway, because if we just take that clause as it is a personal meaning derived from relationship with others, that's healthy. <laughs> Shouldn't we derive personal meaning from relationships with others? We're social animals. So what are you talking about here? But, you know, uh, there's it seems like it's almost there. Um, also, there's a definition among a group called codependent anonymous. So like you have Alcoholics Anonymous or Narcotics Anonymous, there's a group, a 12-step group called Codependent Anonymous, and they are there to help people with codependency. And in their pamphlet, which I read, they have a very long definition of what codependency is, and it is, uh, you know, it's got dozens of aspects and words and adjectives. And it is a very strange blend of codependency and dependent personality disorder, which is to be expected, I guess. So I, I, I think what's happening, because in the chemical dependency world, they understood what codependency was for a long time because they invented the word. They used the word a lot. They didn't have a super great definition and consistency, but, you know, I think over time they knew what it meant. It was the person who enabled. It was the person who... Uh, you know, upheld the addiction from outside of the person that, who suffers from the addiction. 
But I think what's happening with Codependent Anonymous, because you'd think Codependent Anonymous would have a good, you know, clear definition of what codependency is, right? I mean, that's their whole thing. But it's not. It's, it's, I believe, you know, over the past few decades, it's been blending dependent personality disorder into their definite, because in, on their pamphlet, there are clear adjectives describing codependency. And then there are also these additional clear adjectives uh, describing dependent personality disorder. And I just want to be clear codependency and dependent personality disorder do not really overlap. You'll hear me talk about how people with um, borderline and histrionic, they will overlap a lot, or people with passive-aggressive and dependency will overlap a lot. This is not one of those situations. People with codependency are not typically dependent, you know, and people with dependent are not typically codependent. You know, you might find a combination, of, but uh, so they shouldn't, you know, it'd be like describing someone with depression with schizophrenia. It's like, okay, yeah, someone with schizophrenia might be depressed and someone who's depressed might be schizophrenic, but uh, you're, why are you shoving those two, di- those two very different disorders into the same adjective list? You know, anyway, so, but I think what's happening is that over time, which I'll get into later, the lay public has, uh, well, I guess I already went into it, has uh, conflated codependency with dependency. And so the public, when they look up codependent anonymous, they don't understand what uh, codependency is. And so, and they think, you know, people, okay, let me start from the beginning. (laughs) So let's say you have a woman who is suffering from over dependence. She might be on the dependent personality spectrum and she's 35 and she's like, oh, my relationships have gone poorly. I looked on the internet and I think I'm codependent because the internet believes codependent is dependent. Um, and so she's like, oh, you know, yeah, I, I rely on other people too much. I, I don't know who I am. I can't make decisions on my own. I need others to tell me what to do. I, I, I have, I stay in relationships. Long. I can't be alone. And then they, you know, they Google that and, it, and the internet will say you're codependent. That's what the internet will say. They're wrong. But that's what they'll say. Then the 35-year-old woman is like, oh, I'm codependent. And then they, well, how do I get help for codependency? And then Codependent Anonymous pops up. And then the woman shows up to a group. And slowly over time, the powers that be in the Codependent Anonymous uh, group, they're like, okay, fine. We got it. We we give in. (laughs) We'll, We'll include dependent personality disorder in our 12-step group because so many the people with dependent personality disorder are showing up to our groups. And so they take these two things and they just kind of shove them together. And, you know, maybe it's not terrible because, you know, some of the principles of treatment could apply to both, you know, assertiveness, self-esteem, uh, development of a connection to the self, um, knowing boundaries. You know, these things are good for both codependence and dependence. So, you know, maybe it's not horrible, but I, I think that's what's happening. The other thing that could be happening is the powers that be in the codependent anonymous group are thinking there's so many people out there who are looking for help with dependency. Why don't we just, you know, conflate the two and we'll get a lot more members. <laughs> now, codependent anonymous is, you know, obviously not for profit. So it's not like they're amazon.com or anything, but, 
um, you know, we could see that happening. I don't know. All I know is that the pamphlet for Codependent Anonymous does not describe codependency. <laughs> it, it describes codependency and dependent personality disorder. Um, another definition here, quote, codependency can be explained as any combination of dependence, obsession, and preoccupation toward another person, often a person with a substance use disorder or mental health disorder. Okay, so again, close, you know, um, a preoccup preoccupation with someone who has a substance use disorder or mental health disorder. Yeah, I mean, that, that's, that's pretty good. But any combination, I mean, listen to this, um, any combination of dependence, obsession, and preoccupation toward another person. So if you are, uh, you know, dependent on another person and obsessed with another person, you're dependent and obsessed, then you're codependent. No, uh, it, it, you have to, a, a major main point here is you have to be obsessed with someone else who has a problem and you take actions to micromanage that problem, which I'll get into later. But because to me, without that, we're either talking about dependent personality disorder or we're just talking about people who just happen to be in a relationship with someone who has a problem. You know, it's like, come on. Um, and by the way, a lot of the clinical literature will provide definitions and then they'll provide expansions, you know, you know, more words describing what the condition is. And it's still not very satisfying. And it, and it feels like it's all over the place anyway. So uh, let us go on to the feminist critique very briefly. I could talk about this for a long time and I'll talk about it a little bit more, I think in the his history section at the end, but uh it's important to know that the term and the concept of codependency has been used to oppress women and to blame women. Uh, you know, back in the, cause the word codependency goes back, you know, early 20th century. And historically uh, we have in our field and particularly in our society, we have a tendency to blame women for men's problems, to expect women to make up for things and blame mothers for things you know it's 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 you know it's always the mother's fault and uh this is a known phenomenon in, in our field and codependency was a, one of those things you you would have a guy who was drinking every day and and passing out and losing his job and sexism would kick in and be like well it must be the woman's fault she must be nagging she must be withholding and really uh and this is not in the definition of codependency, but in the application of it, that if a woman was trying to help, then she's codependent and she's causing the problem. If she draws a boundary and pulls away, then she's uncaring and she's cold and she's shaming and she is giving the husband reason to drink, that kind of thing. So the woman, the wife couldn't win either direction. And she, she was called, well, you're either codependent or you're withholding kind of a thing. And now that's not baked into the definition of codependency, but it was a way that it was used. Another uh, critique that we could say about codependency is that the, the way it was used historically, and I guess continued could be used in a way that is patriarchal and that it shames connection and interdependency, uh, which is really quite prevalent in our field and particularly in our culture, right? But even in our field, 
you know, like I was talking about earlier, that like couple and family therapy, relationship therapy t- is not l- prestigious because um, in general, because it has to do with like women things, relationships and emotions and connection and, you know, dependency on others. That That's women stuff. And and it's not overt, right? It's not like people are are looking at those things and going, oh, that's women stuff. I don't like it. It's subtle. You know, it's it's baked into our assumptions about how the world works. And so when we look at codependency, we're, we're blaming the partner for trying to help. We're blaming the partner for caring, right? You know, and I'll get more into that later in terms of delineating between codependency and, and just caring about, you know, some of you right now might have partners who suffer from an addiction and you're trying to help them. And there's this tendency if they don't, you know, if they're not right headed about it to just automatically say, Oh, you're codependent, you're enabling and you're, you're a part of the problem. And it's like, well, what are we supposed to do? Just divorce. As soon as someone has a substance use problem, our only non codependent action is, is to divorce them. (laughs) Like that, that's not realistic and it's not even true. So, um, so that the patriarchy would want us to believe that because the woman is trying to help and because she loves, you know, her husband, that means there's something wrong with her because she she doesn't have independence. You know, she she can't think independently or act independently because, you know, what a, a man would just walk away, you know, that kind of thing. So I could go on and on about that. There's There's quite a rich history there, but just know that. You know, if you're using the word codependent in, you know, with, with others, you might have to provide a little caveat like I did of just like, we have to be careful that we don't use this, uh, in the way that it often was in the past, which was, you know, in a sexist and a patriarchal way. And as long as we keep an eye on that, then we might be able to avoid it. Okay. So let's go into the character, the core components or the various components of codependency. So the first group of components are what I'm calling the core components, meaning that these components are present in every codependent personality. And the first one is the main one, which is what I'm calling over-functioning. And I don't love that word because because I'll get into this later that um, I'm going to use the word over-functioning alone as something that is not necessarily codependent. So I hope you'll go with me on this. But well, maybe I should call it something else. <laughs> Let me think. Um, I might call it, maybe I'll just call it anxiously cleaning up someone's mess. But I don't know. I, 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 maybe I'll give it some more thought. But So this is the main criteria for all of those codependent personality disorder. This is the uh, behavior of ang- being anxious and cleaning up the underfunctioner's mess, the person of concern's mess. The codependent person will help the underfunctioner. They focus on the underfunctioner. They do things for them even before the underfunctioner asks for help. Even if the underfunctioner says, stop helping me, they will rescue this kind of thing. So basically where these behaviors come from are the following schemas. It, you know, This first one is the main one. Then this might be the main schema of all of codependency, which is, Everything will fall apart if I do not fix their problems. So when I think about everyone that suffers from codependent personality, 
They all have the schema. Everyone that I've treated has the schema. Everything will fall apart if I don't fix their problems. Very bad things are around every corner unless I micromanage this person to protect them from themselves. Another schema, the underfunctioner is inherently incapable and vulnerable. So you match these two up of, um, and another schema, it's my job to fix this person. And it might even be my only job is to fix this person. Another kind of minor schema is, if I, if I can only get this person to the next milestone, then I can relax. But of course, the codependent never relaxes. You know, They cross the next mile, milestone, but then there's always another milestone up ahead. So this is why it's a personality disorder, is that it's not rational. The codependent person might match up well with someone who has problems, but even if they're with someone that doesn't have problems, they will still need to create problems or see problems in their partners that don't necessarily exist. And it's not just partners, right? It's it's your own children, it's your parents, it's your workmates, this kind of thing. But it's anxiety, it's fear, it's fear of bad things happening. And this is why the overfunctioning happens. This is why they are constantly anxiously cleaning up the mess of the underfunctioner. Because they be, they believe deep, they've been taught through early childhood experiences that bad things are around every corner, and it is your job to to be hyper vigilant and and not only manage the danger but also manage the human. It, it's if you don't manage that the loved one and and control their behavior through either overt controlling or advising, helping, then really, really bad things are going to happen. You know, every codependent I've treated uh, is anxious. They're scared of a, a kind of amorphous, often a very unspecified, dangerous future. Now, these behaviors of the codependent rarely work, if ever, to actually fix the problem. You know, a codependent personality individual with someone who suffers from alcoholism, for example, they will you know, clean up around them. They will buffer between them and the rest of the world. You know, they'll do enabling and they will uh, pump them up, try to help them emotionally, get, you know, get them out the door to work, this kind of thing. And they believe that they're helping. They believe that they're, you know, if I can just get my alcoholic wife to enjoy life or get to a stable place, then maybe she won't drink as much, you know, that kind of thing. Or if I can only get my narcissistic husband to get to a good job that he likes, or if I can just get him to a place where he has a little bit more self-esteem, then I won't be suffering anymore. And so there's this belief that they're, they're fixing by through their activity, but they're not. And if you're aware of codependency and you're observing this kind of thing, then you'll know right away. You'll be like, oh, don't, you're not helping. <laughs> you're, you have a delusion that what you're doing is helping. It's not, you're, you know, it might be enabling the person, but uh, you're not fixing the problem. You know, this isn't, this isn't going in a good direction. You know, that's one of the kind of hallmarks of observing a codependent a relationship with an underfunctioner is the, from the outside, you're just like, do you not see the 
the sort of trap that you're in, you know, from the outside, you'll look at the codependent. It'll just be like, do you not see the futile nature of what you're trying? You know, you're working so hard. You, you'll look at the codependent person and just be like, you are doing so much to try to help this other person. But from my standpoint, why are you doing that? There, there's no sense. But to the codependent person, the codependent personality disordered person, they need this. This is not something that is optional for them. If they don't have this, they will suffer greatly. A codependent person who is in between under functioners is highly suffering. They're empty. They're depressed. They're lonely. They're aimless. They might even become drug addicted themselves because they're so aimless, but they, they, they've, the best functioning they can hope for is being enmeshed with someone with a problem, whether it's substance abuse problem or personality disorder or a rage problem or something. It's usually some, you know, the other, the person of concern, the underfunctioner, you know, common ones obviously are addiction, but you can also imagine borderline, narcissism, histrionic, maybe psychopathy, dependent personality disorder, paranoid personality disorder, um, you know, obsessive compulsive, any of the personality disorders really would, would maybe depression. Uh, I could see depression or maybe even PTSD, that sort of thing. Uh, something that is affecting the other person in such a way that, you know, you're, you're, you won't be, you wouldn't become codependent to someone who had cancer unless the person who has cancer is in denial of their cancer and is, um, psychologically destroying themselves. You know, they're just like, I don't have cancer. I don't know what anyone was talking about. I'm going to continue smoking, you know, that kind of thing. That could mesh well with a codependent person, but um, just because your partner has problems doesn't mean that uh, it would lend itself to codependency. It it has to be something that the co the codependent person has to look at their partner or their the person they're in a relationship with and see self-destruction. Maybe that's the key word. It's like they they need to perceive, and there needs to be a fair you know amount of evidence that the person of concern is engaging as in self-destruction that the codependent person can make up for. All right. Uh, the other thing here is not only does the codependent behavior not work, but it can actually make matters worse. For example, enabling or even pushing, you know, this is what they found early in research was that the uh, recovered alcoholic would go back home and the codependent spouse would push the alcoholic to start drinking again. Be like, you know, you were so much funner when you were drinking, even though everyone knows that the alcoholic's drinking was completely out of control. But to the codependent person, they need, you know, they don't like that their spouse is drinking, but they also need their spouse to have a problem because they define their lives through taking care of other people. And so they might subconsciously be motivated to push their partner to decompensate and to underfunction again. Um, and another scenario that uh, is outside of addictions is say you have a child with avoided personality disorder. You know, your child believes that they are inherently wrong. There's something, you know, the, the key core schema to avoid a personality disorder is 
they believe there's something deeply wrong with them and everyone knows it. And so they will avoid society and jobs and everything because they're just like, as soon as I step out the door, everyone can see just how ridiculous I am. You know, I smell funny. I look funny. I am funny. I walk funny. I talk funny, you know, and it's embarrassing and there's nothing I can do about it because I'm inherently wrong. I, you know, whatever they're, you know, some people it's on appearance. Some people it's on the way they talk this kind of, anyway, so say you have a child with avoidant personality disorder. Well, as a parent, you might actually inadvertently, if you're codependent, if you, you know, if you are codependent, you need your child to remain avoidant personality disorder. If you're codependent, you need, you uphold the other person's problem because without the other person and their problem, you have to, you have to face yourself. You have to, you know, you won't feel like you're worth anything, you know? So the parent who suffers from codependent personality might actually subtly uh, encourage the child to not try things, therefore keeping them at home, therefore keeping them thinking that there's something wrong with them. You know, anyway. So other kinds of behaviors associated with this core component of overfunctioning is advising. This is a huge part of a lot of codependent behavior is lots of unsolicited advice. And there's, there's a lot of function to this, but, but one of the functions is that it implies that the underfunctioner doesn't know what they're doing. You know, if, if you've ever, it's sort of like mansplaining in a sense, like if you've ever experienced someone coming up, you know, imagine you're, you're at the gas pump and some rando just comes up to you and says, so, um, let me help you with that pump because it can be a little tricky sometimes. You, you need to make sure that you, you you put you know you take it off the thing just right. You got to press this button and you, you put it in here, and then you got to do this. Like imagine if someone did that to you over and over and over again. Well, eventually you just start believing there's something you're just in, there's something wrong with you. <laughs> like you don't know what you're doing because if everyone. Like imagine every time you went to the gas station for like ten years, like strangers just came up to you and like, oh, 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 oh I, 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 let, let me let me help you with that, and you're just like, what am I doing wrong? You know, clearly all these people think I'm, even though you're looking at it objectively and saying I'm not doing anything different, but everyone sees me as incompetent, so I must be incompetent. You know, especially if you have that from a young age, and so the codependent person because they need the underfunction or to underfunction, they will subconsciously give so much advice in such a tone and in such a way that the underfunctioner will believe that they can't function on their own. And there's various different kinds of of overfunctioning and, and codependency, which I'll get into in a second. Um, the other thing that advising does is it provides this enmeshment link, right? Of I, I'm anxious about you and everything's going to fall apart unless I manage you. And the only way I can manage you is if I'm constantly advising you, if I'm constantly telling you what to do, whether it's forceful or subtle, I, I need that open line of me advising you. You know, that there's a lot of that in a codependent personality. Also, the codependent will obsess and be preoccupied with the underfunctioner. It could be all encompassing. And there's degrees, right? There's a spectrum of codependency. And at the higher ends, 
that's all they think about 100% of the time. At the mid-range, you know, maybe 50% of the time, they're obsessing about the underfunctioner. The other aspect of this core component of overfunctioning is that the codependent person will often underestimate the competence of the underfunctioner uh, because it serves them to believe that. And they will just assume, no, 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 no. My alcoholic wife is not capable of going to AA. It would, it's too much for her. She can't go to therapy. That, that's, that's too much. My son, who, you know, struggles with depression and self-destruction, um, you know, he's going through a tough time. There, there, there's really nothing that we can do. Uh, my 10-year-old daughter, who has, you know, emotional volatility, you know, she can't find, let's just homeschool her, you know, let, let's just keep her home. And each move uh, may or may not be helpful, but the overall movement is to keep the underfunctioner underfunctioning. Now, a little side note. If you have codependent personality disorder, you are at risk of subtly socializing those around you, particularly your kids, because your kids are uh, uh, sort of defenseless and very malleable, to believing that they can't do things and to believing that you, they need you. So th that's another road to dependency and avoided personality disorder is if you have codependent personality disorder traits you might socialize your family members, friends, particularly your kids, into being an underfunctioner because you need underfunctioners in your life. All right. So all these things, all this overfunctioning leads to a lot of problems with self-care because you're focusing too much on the other people, with self-esteem because it never works. You know, the, the codependence life is a, just a series of failures and anxieties um, because of the pattern that they need to uphold. This will interfere with mutually satisfying relationships. You know, if, if you're trying to have a mutual love with your spouse, but you're in a codependent underfunctioner relationship, you know, it's not mutual. This will affect your health because you're not focusing on yourself. You're, there's a lot of stress. It'll affect your work. So there's a lot of bad things happen from it. All right. So that's over, what I'm calling overfunctioning, which isn't a great word because I'm going to actually give a whole different <laughs> definition of overfunctioning later, but we'll keep it for now. Another core component to codependency is a need to feel needed. And I've already kind of discussed this, but just to put a fine point on it is codependent people need others to see them as, as a helpful, almost parental figure. And they derive purpose through distressing caretaking relationships. So if for whatever reason they aren't in a relationship that is a caretaking relationship or, and or distressing, they feel empty on the inside and they feel purposeless. They feel aimless. They need to be stressed out and caretaking it without that, without being in that place, they're, they're one empty and two terrified. They, they assume one that they're not paying attention. You know, if there's ever like, let's say for whatever reason, the alcoholic just gets help and stops drinking or the person with borderline gets help and, you know, starts to recover from borderline and the codependent person doesn't have to fix the problem of the underfunctioner. 
there's two things that kick in. One is meaninglessness of like, what is my purpose? The other is if I don't feel the stress, I must be ignoring what's really happening. You know, it's sort of like, I don't know, you're, you're on a tightrope and you're scared. You're like, oh, what if I fall off? And then suddenly you get distracted and you suddenly don't feel fear anymore. And you, but you know, you're still on the tightrope. You're like, I must not be paying attention to the tightrope. If I'm not afraid, I'm not paying attention. And so, um, that's what it's like to be a codependent person. And by the way, if this is resonating with you in any sort of way, either you or someone, you know, I would love, love, love if you would email me, go to the website, kick, kick, uh, you know, com. click on the contact button. And in the subject line, put a uh, codependent follow-up and I'll do an episode on that. Cause I, I, I kind of like that phase of these deep dives is, um, you know, g- going into your examples and, and trying to wrestle with, you know, does this fit within my model or not? Um, is, you know, surprisingly, there's not a lot of great info um, in the clinical literature regarding like actual examples. Anyway, uh, so they need to feel needed. They the codependent person derives purpose through caretaking in a stressful relationship. They need the underfunctioner to underfunction to give them self esteem, to give them something to do, to give them purpose to distract them from their own emptiness and to help them feel superior. This isn't true for all codependents, but, but many will have a, this need to feel superior. It gives them self-esteem. It's like, look at me, you know, I'm not the alcoholic. Look at that alcoholic or look at that person with borderline. Look at that person with narcissism. Look at that person who is self-destructive and has rage problems. Uh, I'm next to them and I don't have their problems. That must mean that I am a good person. I'm better. You know, it's a, it's a sort of a a proxy for self-worth. So this is core to the schema of, of codependent personality. And it differentiates those with codependency and those who don't, Uh, because if you are over-functioning, but you don't need to overfunction for someone else. You're just sort of roped into it somehow, or it's circumstantial. Then that's not a personality disorder, right? That's just like circumstantial. But my argument is that at the you know one of the core elements of codependent personality is this desperation, this need to be needed by a underfunctioner, and a and a need to be trying to fix their problems and to be connected intimately with someone and their problems. So another part of this element is that people with codependency might find themselves strangely attracted to people who have problems. You know, they might be on Tinder, and even though there's no way to tell on Tinder who is an alcoholic or who has a personality disorder, codependent people seem to be able to sniff these people out. And I've seen this phenomenon. It's not a magical thing. It's not supernatural. Uh, It's just like people with codependency... They, they just pick up on subtle clues, uh, either in online dating or especially when they start meeting the person that indicate, oh, this person is going to fit well with my codependency because they have signs of underfunctioning. You know, maybe it's childishness, maybe it's rage problems, emotional immaturity, that kind of stuff. And the codependent person will not identify it as that, you know, because the subconscious is playing a trick on them. 
Um, schemas involved here are my worth is based on how needed I am and how helpful I am. Also, another schema is it is selfish to do things for myself. Uh, again, these efforts cause problems with self-esteem and self-care and relationships. All right. The third core element is enmeshment. So you have overfunctioning, you have a need to feel needed, and you have enmeshment. The need to enmesh is intense with the underfunctioner because the the codependent person needs to be involved. They need to be needed. They need to be included. They need to be a central part of the underfunctioner's life. And one of the ways to do this is to enmesh. And the uh, you need enmeshment to exist. Lack of boundaries. You know, overlapping identities. If you're going to influence that person, right? And their problems feel like your problem. You know, if if you're the codependent, your spouse's rage problem feels very much like it's your problem. You are responsible for it or something. It's your shame. You know, when you're when your wife, you know, gets rageful and becomes, you know, angry at a store or something at, in public, you feel like it's your responsibility instead of saying like, whoa, like my wife is having a problem right now. Like, I don't know. It's not my problem. Uh, a schema here involved is if I don't invade the underfunctioner, everything will fall apart. So you notice a lot of the schemas involve everything is going to fall apart. That's kind of a central theme to codependency is if I am not codependent, if I don't do all these things, if I don't enmesh, if I don't invade, if if I don't find someone to need me, then everything's going to fall apart. Some unnamed terrible thing is going to happen. And it relates back to, and I'll get more in the causes later, but you know, it relates back to lack of attunement. So they... Uh, the codependent person often defines themselves by the person of concern, by the underfunctioner. They, and this is enmeshment, right? Like, there's nothing wrong with uh, being overlapping a little bit. You know, my relationship with my wife, for example, uh, the things that she, you know, when she she makes art, you can go to Stacy Honda Instagram. And you can see her art. It's great. And when she wins awards or sells a, a piece, I feel personally pr- proud about that. Well, I didn't do that. Why do I feel pride? <laughs> you know, it's her. Well, you know, it's a, it's a little bit of overlapping there. You know, we're in a couple. We, you know, we represent each other kind of a thing. So, and there's a lot of examples like that. Like when she is sick or something, I feel bad. When she's sad, I feel sad. When she's happy, I feel happy. So some overlap is normal and healthy but to the codependent person it's unhealthy how much they define themselves through the underfunctioner and their relationship with the underfunctioner they also uh, don't recognize when the person of concern is violating their own boundaries this isn't always the case but what can happen is because of the enmeshment not only is the codependent person invading because they're trying to advise and control and manage micromanage but also the underfunctioner plays a role in this as well they often will invade the codependent's boundaries as well and you know emotionally physically um time wise this sort of thing because the underfunction you know i don't know if there's another personality disorder that depends so much on 
another human to define the personality disorder, if you know what I mean. Uh, codependency doesn't exist in a vacuum, but and really none of the personality disorders do. But I, I think as I talk about it, I, th- I feel like codependency is very much a, a you, you can't talk about codependency without talking about the underfunctioner as well, right? Whereas you could talk about borderline without necessarily talking about those that they're involved with. Anyway, the fourth core component is enabling and rescuing. I've already referred to this a little bit, but just to put a fine point on it. So this is shielding the underfunctioner from the negative consequences of their behavior. For example, hiding the behavior from others, lying to others, calling in sick for them, even gaslighting for them. You know, you might even gaslight your own children because you're trying to protect your spouse from your children and recognizing something's wrong with your spouse. You might make excuses for them. You know, you might say, well, you know, they're going through a lot right now. Or, well, you know, all men get angry sometimes. You might tell the person of concern that their behavior is okay. Every, you know, you're okay. People drink or, you know, hey, everyone has emotional problems. You might protect them from the consequences, fix their problems, not hold them accountable. You might get a better paying job to make up for the fact that your partner has lost their job. You might blame yourself instead of blaming them. You might pay off their debts if they have a gambling problem. You might not assert yourself because to do so would uh, inflame or highlight the problem of your partner. You might keep secrets for them. You know, they might have a secret of heroin addiction and, and they don't want you to tell anyone. And so you don't tell anyone. You might not recognize the importance of treatment as a codependent person. You might say, oh, you know, treatment doesn't really work or, um, you know, I don't think that she's ready for therapy. You know, it takes time or whatever. You might adopt their problematic point of view, their rage, their sexism, the idea that therapy doesn't work, this sort of thing. You might triangulate to distract the system from the over from the underfunctioner by scapegoating a child. The schemas involved here are, if I don't rescue, everything will fall apart. If I don't enable, everything will fall apart. (laughs) There's that phrase. Everything's going to fall apart if I don't blank as a codependent person. Another schema is the underfunctioner cannot function on their own. So uh, I either have to fix their problem, which isn't working, or I have to protect them from the consequences. Um. And they will not learn from their mistakes, right? Because, and it's nuanced. And every every codependent enabling situation is different. But sometimes the the solution is for the for the codependent person to, or the overfunctioning person to uh, allow the underfunctioning person to make mistakes and fall on their face and learn from their mistakes. But if you're terribly anxious about the consequences of the underfunctioner making mistakes, then it's hard for you to do that, right? Especially if you have a schema that bad things are around every corner. So enabling and rescuing is motivated by a lot of things. It's fear of catastrophic consequences, right? That are not likely to happen. Shame as well. If you're a, if you're ashamed of your child or your mom or your friend or your partner because they have some problem, then 
you just don't want to think about it. You don't want to acknowledge it. It's shameful. You feel ashamed. You might be in denial of their problem. You might have a creeping normality issue where, you know, like a, like a common scenario is you meet your husband, you meet a man and he drinks, you know, uh, kind of excessively, but not a lot. You know, he drink. you meet in college and he drinks like a lot of other people in college. And then as time moves forward, his, his drinking slowly increases. And since it's over this very long period of time, it, 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 it's this creeping normalcy where by the time you're 15 years into the relationship, your husband has been drinking like, you know, a fifth or two every day of alcohol. And if that had been present 10 years earlier, you would have noticed it. But since it was a slow creep to that point, it just feels like normal. And so you might enable based on that, minimize and you might know like, well, I know society thinks that drinking a fifth a day is wrong, but you know, my husband, you know, some people drink a lot. He's, he's going through a lot right now. The other issue is, that can happen is that sometimes the underfunctional will threaten the codependent person, they uh, to the point where, as a codependent person, you, you're very you're highly incentivized based on fear of the underfunctioning underfunctioner harming you or someone else that you'll enable. Like if your wife has a rage problem and you are you know codependent and you're enabling it, and you, you go to your wife, you'd be like, you know, you probably need to work on that. And she says something like, you talking with me about this, you accusing me of having a problem makes me more angry, which I have to say, you know, it's not a good thing when I'm about to take the kids to the park. So, you know, there's a threat in there, right? And and if you're trapped and codependent, you don't know what else to do. And so you might just go into enabling. You just be like, oh, yeah, yeah. And then it, it socializes you into this mindset of everything's fine and she doesn't have a rage problem. She's normal. And, you know, that kind of stuff. Uh, all right. So the fifth and final core component is denial, which I've been over. But again, just want to, uh, you know, tease out. So codependents are always in denial uh, before they get therapy, <laughs> before they have their uh, enlightening moment. Um, but when they're in the dysfunction, they're in denial of two things. One, of the underfunctioner's problem, but also of their own part in the problem. So they're not only in denial of their wife's rage problem, but they're also in denial of how they're enabling it. Now, they don't do this because they're, you know, people don't go into denial for no reason. They do it because they don't have, they feel like they have no other choice because they're stuck. They are you know they there's a part of them that wants to stop enabling there's a part of them that wants to be independent there's a part of them that wants to not have to fix their problems all the time there's a part of them that wants to go to therapy and figure out their own who they are this guy but but there's another part of them that recognizes and might even be you know realizing that look when you try to improve your life bad things happen either you perceive as a codependent person, bad things are happening. Cause that, I guess that's another component that isn't core, but I, I should mention is that when the codependent person, when bad things happen to the underfunctioner, the codependent person will 
times it by 10. So, for example, you're a codependent father and your daughter has um, dependent personality, for example. Or let's say your daughter has heroin addiction. And you're a codependent father because you have these schemas based on your childhood. You have a need to be needed. You, you have a need to overfunction. And you, uh, your daughter has, uh, you know, you, uh, you will allow, so to speak, your daughter to get her own apartment instead of living at home. And within a week, she uses too much heroin and almost goes to the hospital. You know, that kind of thing. And, well, I guess that's not a very good example because that is pretty bad. <laughs> Let's go back to the dependent personality. So you, your daughter is living with you and is terrified of making mistakes and is also very incompetent because she's never... Uh, been expected to and has never pushed herself to try new things because she's terrified of making mistakes. And so um, she doesn't know how to socialize. She doesn't know how to get a job. She doesn't know how to drive a car. And this one time you, as a codependent person, you tried to push the relationship towards more health and, and your your daughter towards more health by, say, taking her out to drive the car. You know, you get her... A, a permit and you're driving and she has a, a mild anxiety attack while she's driving the car and uh, pulls over and is like, Oh, you know, I don't know what to do. I driving, you know, which is expected. If you have a, if you have an avoidant or a dependent child, then, you know, it's going to be scary for them at first and they might have a lot of emotions and that's okay. But, if you are a codependent person, you need to be needed. You need the underfunction or to underfunction. And so, you know, a month later, you're going to re-narrativize that situation to when I when I tried to help my daughter become more independent, um, she almost killed us in the car because of her anxiety, even though that didn't really happen. She just had, you know, she had a mild anxiety episode and she pulled over. Or I almost drove her crazy, or I almost drove her to kill herself, even though that's not exactly what happened, right? And and so that is another kind of version of denial. You know, it keeps you in, it's a way of tricking your mind. Denial is a way of tricking your mind into avoiding something that's very painful and scary to you, right? And if you're ever outside of a codependent, underfunctional relationship, you'll notice how much d denial is present in the relationship. It'll, uh, from an outsider, you'll just be like, how do you not see how problematic this is? How do you not, how do you live in this relationship? It doesn't look right. I mean, and, but when you're in it for both the underfunctioner and the codependent, denial kicks in, creeping normalcy kicks in, and it, it just feels normal. It just feels like everything's fine. And so this is a huge barrier, obviously, to codependents um, getting help because they can be quite distorted, quite distorted about their the need for hypervigilance. You know, in the same way that you look to someone with borderline and they're very distorted about abandonment uh, signs, right? You're, um, 
you know, in a friendship with someone with borderline and the borderline person texts you and you're busy, you don't text them back to the borderline person who's, you know, say higher in the spectrum, they will take that lack of response to your text as you hate them and that you've always hated them and that you've always been trying to get rid of them. You know, it's a very common borderline paranoia and distortion is no one likes me. And even people who are, who are acting like they like me are, are just trying to get away from me. You know, I, I would work with borderline clients and have, and they will, uh, not often, but a, a very common thing they'll say to me is, is so are you just, uh, do you still want me as a client? Even though I've done nothing to indicate, I don't want to work with them or, um, do you, uh, are, are you always thinking about how to get rid of me? You know, the other, the last session, you seem like you were a little cold and were you trying to tell me to, to, to terminate with you so that you wouldn't have to deal with me anymore? You know, because there's a schema that there's something wrong with them and that they're abandonable and that abandonment is around every corner. Well, to the codependent person, they believe that danger is around every corner and, their uh, codependent behaviors are a hundred percent necessary and and you just don't understand you know that to the codependent person if you ever approach a codependent relationship and comment on it the codependent person will look at you like no 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 no, you don't understand you don't understand what i'm dealing with is what they'll say you understand how much this person needs me you don't understand how incompetent this person is like without me everything falls apart. And there might be some truth to that, you know, in reality, which I'll I'll get into later, but obviously there might not be any truth to it. Okay. So other possible components, these are components of codependence that are, you know, discussed in the clinical literature or just components that I've observed that aren't central and might not even necessarily be present in everyone with codependence. The first one is controlling behavior of the underfunctioner. So this is only present. This is this is present in a sense with all people with codependent personality disorder, but with some it's much more overt. Like overt control is, you know, actually just telling someone what to do or or beating them into submission. You know, that a codependent person can do that. But other subtle controlling things can be like what I've been describing earlier, which is like giving constant advice, you know, Hey, uh, did you, you know, did you call that number? Did, did you, um, did you pick up that thing from the thing? Did you, did it, you know, make sure you do this, make sure you do that. Uh, or, uh, just going over to their house and cleaning up their apartment or something, you know, this isn't what we wouldn't call this controlling, but it is kind of controlling, right? It's like invasive, right? So uh, there's that, but some people can be very overtly controlling, which I'll get into more later. That's one of the types that I have. So the controlling behavior of the codependent is based on anxiety. It's it's just another manifestation of the overfunctioning, anxious micromanaging. Um so there's that. And the schema here is if I'm not in control, everything will fall apart. So, you know, for the codependent people who are, you know, highly, con- highly controlling, they're doing it because they believe deep down through and through that if they're not 
in control, if they're not, if they're not in power over the overfunctioner, over the underfunctioner, then everything will fall apart. It just feels dangerous to not be in a position of power over this other person. Behaviors could be micromanaging, convincing others that the underfunctioner is incompetent and needs the codependent person to survive. You might fight with the underfunctioner or yell at them or be violent with them. You might use emotional control like begging and crying and shaming. You might invade them. You might hack into their phone or, uh, you know, break into their house or something. You might threaten to tell their family or triangulate with the children. You might become resentful when the underfunctioner declines your help or rejects your advice. All right. Another possible component is focus on others, self-sacrificing and emotional suppression. In the literature, this is often described as a central feature of codependency, but in my experience, it isn't necessarily. It's, it's often there. It's often present, but it's not really core in my opinion. Maybe I'll change my opinions. But, um, I mean, certainly with codependency, there's self-sacrifice and focusing on the underfunctioner. But it's not, it's not a general personality trait that they're generally focusing on other people and generally self-sacrificing, if that makes any sense. Um, the reason why they're focusing on others and self-sacrificing usually is, is an outgrowth of the same problem that created the codependency in the first place, which is the way you're treated when you're growing up. If you're treated like you don't really matter, then you tend to self-sacrifice because you don't believe your boundaries are important. You don't believe you matter. And so uh, you will give in a lot and sacrifice for others because you believe that's maybe your only road to connection or to worth, you know, that kind of thing. So uh, codependent people might ignore their internal life. They might ignore their own feelings and their, their own emotions they might have difficulty asking for what they want or what they need. They might even be embarrassed to receive recognition, praise, or gifts because they're oriented towards self-sacrificing and martyrdom and focusing on others. So again, this kind of fits. It, again, it's not always with codependents, but it, it fits with a certain kind of codependent in that, you know, remember, codependent people need to feel needed. And one way to convince yourself and others that you're needed is if you're in a constant state of being martyred on someone else's behalf, right? If you are always being victimized by someone else who has problems that's close to you, then it serves the meaning of your life, you know? So for example, um, you have tickets to go to the opera and you've always wanted to go, but your partner starts to have an emotional episode of some kind. And on one hand, you could be like, well, but I've always wanted to go to the opera. Can you get help from someone else? That'd be maybe the healthy way to go. But if you forego the opera and self-sacrifice and martyr yourself, even if your partner is like, no, 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 go to the opera. <laughs> I don't want this hanging over my head. 
But if you martyr yourself, then you're sending this huge signal to yourself and everyone around you that you are sacrificing yourself for someone else's problem and that you are helpful. You know, martyrdom, <clears throat> it, that's often discussed in this way, is, is another way of saying extreme helpfulness, right? And, and histrionic, very showy helpfulness. You know, look how helpful I am. Look at what I sacrifice for everyone. And, and it really solidifies this identity of I am selfless, I'm superior, and I help other people. And that's my, and look, look at, look how good of a helper I am. I'm so helpful that I deny myself my own wants, you know? So it becomes part of that, that effort, right? And so a lot of times we'll look at these codependent martyrs and be like, ah, gross. But again, it emerges from this deep, deep lesson that they learned growing up, which is you are not an independent human being and you don't deserve things for yourself. You, your only purpose is to help other people who have problems, big problems, that kind of thing. Um, they, along these lines, they might be, um, so, and so they're embarrassed to receive recognition, praise, or gifts for that same reason that if someone comes to them and praises them and says, Oh, good for you. That implies that the codependent person is no longer taking care of other people. You know, it, 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 it reverses the flow of energy. You know, the, the codependent person is obsessed with taking care of other people, right? To, to fix other people's problems. And if you flip that around and you're now taking care of them by giving them a gift or recognize them or giving them praise, it freaks them out because they don't know what to do with that. Um, one, it's very uncomfortable because it, it opens them up to vulnerability that they don't, they don't trust because it, it didn't work out well when they were young, but also it re- it strips them of their comfort zone, which is to be the martyr and to be taking care of others. They might value the approval of other people more than they should. They might obtain their self-esteem from reactions and feelings of other people. They might adapt to other people. They might be a chameleon, which I'll get into later. Um, All right, so another uh, possible component of codependency is lack of connection with self. You'll you'll, you'll hear me talk about this sometime, or what commonly is known as lack of self. So this is just an outgrowth of the foundation of any personality disorder, which is lack of attunement and, you know, neglect or mistreatment of some kind. To, you know, when one develops a personality disorder like codependency, you are being mistreated. You're, you're being shoved into a box of some kind. And by definition, you're not being attuned to enough. And when you're not attuned to enough, you aren't given the opportunity to learn who you are and, and what your emotions are and, and, and what your needs are. And so, uh, uh, anyone with, uh, you know, a high grade personality disorder, lacks a connection with who they are. They don't know what their needs are. They have a hard time identifying their emotions. They don't value themselves. And when you ask them who they are and what they need, they they come up empty. There are things down there. They have needs. They have wants. They're just not connected with it, right? 
Now, people with minor codependency personality disorder, in my experience, might have an, an okay connection with the self. So it's it's not inherent. That's why I didn't include it in the the um, core components of codependency. All right, the last component is low self-esteem. That's pretty obvious and pretty common to any kind of disorder, personality disorder. But it's similar to lack of connection with self. Uh, low self-esteem is an outgrowth of the foundation of where codependency emerged from in the first place. You know, when you're treated like your only purpose is to help other people who have problems, uh, you're treated in a way that you don't matter. And you, you're not given an opportunity to get your needs met. And so there's there's a lot of low self-esteem that, it, that emerges from that situation. Also, the ongoing onslaught to your self-esteem when you're in a codependent relationship doesn't help. When you have a partner who is suffering from a drug addiction or a personality disorder or a rage problem or something, and you're constantly trying to fix it and nothing works because of all the reasons I stated earlier, uh, you tend to look at yourself when you you know get, get a chance and say like I'm a failure. You know I I I haven't I, I I've been involved with six people they've all had personality disorders you know and i've tried to fix every single one of them and 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 convince them to treat me better and it didn't work you know like uh there must be something wrong with me kind of a thing all right so let's go on to results so the research what does the research say that are the outcomes of codependent uh, personality and i'm just going to rattle through the list so i could elaborate but i think Uh, you don't really need that. So codependency, according to research, is associated with lower relationship satisfaction, relationship distress, greater dysfunction in relationships, lower self-esteem, more attachment insecurity, uh, preoccupation and avoidant attachment styles are both connected and associated with uh, codependency. Um, And that's an important point that people will often think, oh, well, codependents, they must be preoccupied, right? And certainly they can be. But an avoidant person can absolutely be codependent. Uh, It'll look a little different, but an avoidant person, you know, uh, avoidant people can be scared. (laughs) It's not like avoidant people aren't prone to anxiety, relationship anxiety. Um, Codependency is associated with controlling behaviors, research shows. Also, lower socially desirable masculine and feminine traits. So let's drill down on this one a little bit. So codependency is associated with lower socially desirable masculine and feminine traits, meaning that there are socially desirable masculine traits and socially undesirable masculine traits. There are socially desirable feminine traits and socially undesirable feminine traits. So when you are codependent and you engage in masculinity, you're more likely, according to research, to be more toxic masculinity as opposed to positive masculinity. You know, you might be more rigid. You know, if you're the codependent person and you're engaging in masculinity, you're more likely to be rigid and angry and, you know, forceful rather than courageous and, you know, nice. (laughs) And if you're feminine... Uh, exhibiting feminine traits as a codependent person, you're more likely to be subservient, 
and overly emotional and um, wishy-washy, you know, that kind of thing, as opposed to being um, compassionate and emotionally mature, that kind of stuff. Codependency is also associated with anxiety and depression and somatic complaints, physical complaints, social dysfunction, you know, relationship problems, relationship anxiety, and relationship avoidance. Not always, but some codependent people will actually avoid relationships, I think for good reason. Okay, so let's talk about types. This is my own typology based on all my deep dive uh, doings and my own clients and people I know in my personal life for that matter. I have three types. One is the helpful codependent. Two is the controlling codependent. And three is the chameleon codependent. So let's talk about the first one, the helpful codependent. This is kind of the quintessential and maybe anecdotally the most frequent codependent. So the helpful codependent is often with someone who the underfunctioner is childish and or incompetent, sometimes compliant uh, with the overfunctioner. Um, so the helpful codependent micromanages, they enable, maybe it'd be good for me to give a, like a example. So, uh, we have a mother and a daughter. The daughter is 25 and the mother is a mother and the mother is the codependent and the daughter is the underfunctioner. The daughter is, um, you know, compliant sometimes with the mother, other times not. The mother has a deep need and defines herself through being helpful to a underfunctioner. Uh, she will put, um, okay, somebody described like a, like two modes that this couple get, that this mother daughter gets into. In one mode, the daughter is trying to become independent. She's trying to figure her life out. And she's trying to do things without her mother helping her. But because she is dependent, so the, the daughter has dependent personality disorder, she believes that she's incompetent deep down. And so when she tries to be independent, her lack of self-esteem kicks in and she will self-sabotage and screw things up. And then she will run to the mother. And when the dependent personality disorder, 25-year-old woman runs to her mother, she's terrified of the mother criticizing her and shaming her. But she also, because she's dependent, she doesn't know where else to go. And she has a compulsion to run to the mother. She runs to the mother. And the mother, at first, tries to remain differentiated and boundaried, but very quickly falls back into a pattern of, uh, of protecting the daughter, enabling, telling her that, okay, I'm here, I'll fix everything. Uh, and the mother will subtly criticize the daughter to believing that the daughter is incompetent. You know, like the mother might say things like, well, we all knew that you were going to screw that up. Or 
you know, the next time you think about doing some, maybe you need to ask me it for advice before you do anything like that. So although these statements aren't necessarily wrong, they're on, you know, they're a part of a larger campaign subconsciously committed by the mother to make the daughter feel like she can't do things on her own and to keep the enmeshment in place. So again, the mother is codependent and has a deep need to be needed and is subconsciously socializing her daughter to being incompetent and dependent from an early age, by the way, you know, the, the daughter had been socialized since, you know, she was born to be, seen as incompetent and needy and the the mother didn't know she was creating a dependent child but she uh did subconsciously and you know in another way you could almost consider it a projective identification that the codependent person often has a denied part of themselves of dependency of neediness and because when they were growing up they often had that denied or rejected and so they reject it in themselves and then they project it into other people and they they take care of that incompetent part of themselves in other people by being ultra competent and ultra helpful so that's one description of the helpful codependent so you notice there's no controlling in there you know there's no demands there's no abuse but it's subtle and you know there's con- you could argue there's controlling aspects to it but it's mainly just a micromanaging and enabling effort the codependent is being other focused the mother's not focusing on herself she's self-sacrificing she is maternal in her energy she saves she's anxious she's hypervigilant she might nag her daughter nitpick interfere and be mildly controlling um, the under functioners that are connected with helpful codependents will often complain that the codependent person is always in their business and always saying no to everything always you know never any fun so other examples of the helpful codependent uh, that I can give you if you're if you watch the Gilmore girls Rory Gilmore. I love that show. I I've I've seen all the seasons like I don't know, three times. <laughs> it's been a while since I've watched it, but um so in this uh show you have mother Lorelai who who was a young mother, a teen mother, and you have Rory the daughter who is very competent. And so Rory is the codependent. And it's not incredibly codependent Rory, but you could see like there, there's elements and Lorelai is the underfunctioner. although Lorelai functions pretty well. You know, she has a job that, but emotionally you could say she's underfunctioning. It's not terrible, you know? Oh, by the way. So in my thinking and categorizing the helpful codependent matches up with two types, typically of underfunctioner. One type is the dependent personality disorder underfunctioner, which I described earlier with the mother and the daughter. The other type of underfunctioner is what I'm calling the chaotic underfunctioner, meaning that, and that's kind of like Lorelai, the, the, you know, the mother in the Gilmore Girls. She's just kind of out of control, emotionally volatile, makes bad decisions, uh, maybe gets drunk too much, irresponsible, 
that kind of thing, random. And so Rory being a helpful codependent. So Rory wasn't controlling of the mother, but she was very helpful and would enable and micromanage and self-sacrifice kind of maternal over her own mother, parentified over her own mother. So that's one example. It's not a quintessential example, but it kind of gets us in the direction. A much better example from TV is Marge Simpson with Homer. Oh boy, this show, if you just look at it, you know, it's a cartoon, blah, blah, blah. But if you look at this as a real family, if this was a real family, Homer Simpson is the quintessential chaotic underfunctioner. He is constantly making bad choices and putting everyone at risk. He is a terrible human being. Now, it's a cartoon, it's a comedy, but if you just even just watched five episodes of The Simpsons, you would say, Marge, get your kids and never talk to Homer again. Leave and never look back. Um, your sisters are better off around your kids than Homer. Homer is a disaster. I mean, there's, you know, there's episodes where he gets a gun and he just, he's like holding it at the dinner table loaded and like shoots it on accident. You know, doesn't know how to, you know, it's like, now again, it's a cartoon, you know, but, and I love the Simpsons, of course, but if you just look at their relationship, if it were real, Marge Simpson is the quintessential codependent. She micromanages, you know, she enables she self-sacrifices. She doesn't, she never draws boundaries or, you know, rarely there's episodes where she does, right? There's some famous episodes where she's like, I'm done. But, you know, 99% of the time she's just nagging and nitpicking, you know, Homer put the gun down. But, uh, so who knows? We'd have to interview Marge, but there's a possibility that if she were a real person, particularly given the chronic nature of, the relationship, you would imagine that this relationship serves some psychological deep purpose for Marge, that for her, Marge needs Homer to have self-esteem. She needs to be the nitpicking, micromanaging, self-sacrificial one, because that gives her meaning to her life. And without it, she is lost. Because otherwise, why in the world would you stay married or live with this person? Now, you know, it's a show, so there's there's redeeming qualities of Homer. I understand that. But anyway, so I gave an example of a mother who was, you know, the helpful codependent of the childish underfunctioner. And then we have Marge, who was the codependent over the chaotic underfunctioner. Um, another example is, say, you have a husband who has borderline personality disorder, and he's not very aware of his symptoms. He's very reactive and gets hurt very quickly, and then he gets very angry and very sure of himself and will say things like, you know, in couples therapy, he would say things like, he might say things like, um, well, if my wife wasn't such a cold person, maybe this household wouldn't be so horrible all the time. Or you won't believe what she did to me last week. And yeah, I've been giving her the silent treatment for five days. But uh, but five days ago, I asked her if she wanted to have date night. And she said that she was too busy with taking care of the kids. And I just thought that was ridiculous. I mean, 
why am I even married to this person? You know, that kind of stuff. So it's distortion. The borderline is distortion based on a, you know, abandonment and mistreatment traumas. And they, the borderline individual sees harm and, and an intentional abandonment where it doesn't exist all the time. And so the wife of the borderline husband was codependent, I found, over time. That for her, she needed this relationship. She needed to manage him. And because his emotional volatility was so high, because his relational traumas are triggered so often, which is natural if you have borderline, for her, it provided her a, a very convenient uh relationship upon which she could put her herself aside you know because that's a big purpose often to codependency is i don't want to deal with myself i I can only deal with other people i don't want to look at myself because i don't like myself or it's empty or i don't know what to do with myself and so i'm going to focus on the other because i I know i can you know it's so there's so much there's so much to do you know there's so much purpose and it's like oh look what i can do i can take care of this other person I've checked that off my list. They were coming apart emotionally and I got them to calm down. I, I got them to be happy. Okay. I, you know, I did something today. I accomplished something. Whereas without this codependent relationship, because of the lack of self that they have, they don't, they wouldn't know what else to do or because so much of their self-esteem is wrapped in managing someone else's problems. They don't get self-esteem or meaning in other activities. So the other thing it, that the wife was getting was a feeling of superiority that she would look at her husband and say, he is pro- he has a problem. Everyone knows that he's overreactive. Everyone in the family understands that, you know, dad's to blame for the problems and I'm not to blame. And look at me, look how, look, I'm a saint. And everyone says I'm a saint. They're like, oh, you put up with so much crap. What a wonderful person you are. Um, let's see. Is there another example? Uh, let me think. Another example. You got a got a husband who is married to uh, a woman who has bipolar. The husband is codependent. The wife with bipolar, it, you know, sometimes medicated, sometimes not. Um, sometimes depressed, sometimes manic, sometimes not. And when manic particularly has a lot of chaotic behavior and self-destruction drug addiction and the husband uh, stands by her but also kind of needs her to be this way and when she's stable and and going to treatment and following psychiatric recommendations and non-symptomatic the husband starts to get anxious you know, starts to wonder what bad thing is going to happen. You know, that's kind of a feature of people with codependency is they have a schema, which I mentioned earlier, that something scary is just around every corner. And so if something bad isn't happening right now, then a big bad thing is coming, which is obviously not necessarily true, right? So he experienced a lot of anxiety and subconsciously would start to encourage her not to take her meds so she could, you know, be more symptomatic so he could save her from her own issues, right? So that's another example of the helpful codependent. 
right? So like, like I said, that's kind of the quintessential codependent. Number two is the controlling codependent. So this is similar to the helpful, except it's just a lot more overt control and dominance. So in my anecdotal experience, the controlling codependent is much more often paired with a, a more compliant underfunctioner. So, for example, with Marge and Homer, you know, Homer won't comply to Marge. So Marge couldn't be a controlling codependent with Homer because, she, you know, a controlling codependent wouldn't fit with Homer because Homer would do his own thing and the relationship would fly apart. So the only way that it would work between Marge and Homer is if Marge is a helpful rather than controlling codependent, right? Controlling codependents, though, they fit well with compliant underfunctioners. The controlling behaviors are, you know, dominance, criticism, pressuring, acting superior, but also, you know, has all the other elements of codependency, being other-focused, anxious, hypervigilant, you know, maybe invasive. So let's give an example of this. So let's say that we have a, uh, you know, gay relationship, uh, marriage, and the codependent husband uh, is, um, uh, so hypothetically, so uh, the underfunctioning husband is an alcoholic, and he binges. So he'll binge one month on, one month off, that kind of thing. Maybe a little, maybe three months off, one month on. And also, the underfunctioning husband has a lot of uh, debts that he's gone into and a lot of uh, uh, behavioral and emotional issues as well. The codependent husband minimizes, enables, fixes, but also criticizes, threatens to leave the underfunctioner if he doesn't get better, but, but actually never leaves, by the way, of course. Because the codependent person needs the underfunctioner, right? The codependent husband might invade the the life by saying, "Okay, I'm going to tell you what to do all the time. I need all your passwords, that kind of thing. I'm going to take over the money in this household. You can't handle the money because look at look at what you do when you go on binges." I'm going to tell you what you're going to eat. I'm going to tell you all, you know, I'm going to micromanage everything in your life. And if, and if you don't do what I tell you to do, I'm going to leave you. Um, or, uh, and, or I'm going to follow this up with all this, all these messages that you're incompetent. You don't know what you're doing. You're a terrible person. And if it weren't for me, you wouldn't know what you were doing. So this is kind of an extreme example of the controlling codependent. Another example is you have a mother, son, where the mother is codependent, the son is the uh, mostly compliant, incompetent, irresponsible underfunctioner. So the son is, say, 25, and he still lives at home, and he is um, irresponsible and um, you know doesn't really think about his future. He dates people that aren't very good for him. He's not good with his money. He spends his money too quickly. He doesn't think about how he's going to move out or um, he doesn't help out around the house very much. And the mom as a codependent, as a controlling codependent, again, she's very anxious as with the husband, very both codependent, all codependent people are very scared of bad things of bad things happening. And so 
the the mother is terrified he's going to get someone pregnant he's going to hurt himself he's going to screw up his career he's going to get in a car accident he's going to make the wrong investments and so her solution to this anxiety is to invade and mesh and control and and criticize and put down you don't know what you're doing let let me do it what are you doing over there you know who are you dating how are you dating are you in birth control what's going on here and it's all encompassing and it's extremely invasive and to the son he doesn't know what else to do he just lets it happen but he doesn't like it but he also kind of likes it because it's always been there and he doesn't feel confident on his own and both individuals mother and son lack a sense of self they lack of a you know a connection with who they are so neither one of them are really in connection with their needs and neither one of them know what their purpose is neither one of them other than the fact that they're in a relationship with each other that, that provides a huge amount of purpose her purpose the mother's purpose is to save her son from his follies and she's going to control and invade and just tell it and be you know just dominate tell him what and then sometimes when he starts to pull away she will cry and manipulate through emotional displays to get him to not move away from her it's kind of self kind of subconscious but also kind of not again the mom due to relational traumas when she was growing up sees no other worth for herself other than when she is taking care of someone else and if and if someone else won't let her take care of them she will make them allow her allow her to take care of them she might even subtly or not so subtly make others to be incompetent and needy of her because that's the only way that she feels good about herself it's not a choice you know she's she's desperately you know acting codependent all right so that's controlling and then we could obviously extend that to physical abuse if someone if someone could certainly be that way but typically those people that i'm thinking of who are controlling codependent they're they're not violent they're just more emotionally abusive and critical the third type which is really quite different from the first two is a chameleon codependent so this is someone that again is anxious about bad things happening and is oriented towards people who have distressing self-destructive problems and they are there to fix their problem but instead of helping and micromanaging or controlling uh, the chameleon adapts to the problem itself. So um, they like the a really good example of this is Sandy from Greece, the movie and the play with Danny, if you're familiar. So in the movie, in the story, you have Sandy and Daddy who meet in you know, you know, summertime and Danny's away from his friends, and so he's free to be just a regular human being, non-toxic, masculine. And Sandy and Danny hit it off really well. And then come uh, school time, when school year starts, Danny is now around his friends, and he has to act all tough and cool. He can't act like he's a vulnerable human being. He has to act all cool. And so Danny has an immaturity problem and a toxic masculinity problem and a low self-esteem problem that manifests at his rejection of Sandy. Sandy feels very sad about this. And instead of saying, my goodness, red flag, um, I deserve better. 
she detects this boy has so many emotional problems and is so insecure and so problematic. I need to fix him. This is going to be perfect. This is subconscious. You know, I'm so attracted to this boy because I detect in him massive personality problems. So what do I do? I could help him, but uh, that's not how I'm oriented. I could control him. I, I don't know if that'd work. I'm not oriented that way either. Or I could become him. And that's what she does, right? At the end of the story, she she becomes a greaser. So that's sort of a cartoonish example. And another example is Bella on Twilight with Edward. Uh, I'm not super familiar with the story, but to just kind of go over it briefly... Um, and, you know, I apologize if I'm getting any kind of details wrong here. So Bella possibly, uh, you know, she goes into her childhood a little bit in the books, and she possibly experienced some tough times in her childhood. There was divorce. She apparently had a difficult grandmother. Um, she felt different from other people, maybe bullied when she was growing up. Um, so there's that. Also, she's best friends with her mom. There's a, There's an enmeshment. Her mom burdened Bella with the knowledge that the mom was sad about not having any romance in her life. And because Bella as a child, you know, I think she's like a tween at this point is parentified. It was her job to get her mother to go on more dates, you know, to encourage her, mom, go on more dates, find, find the man of your life, you know, find the one. So it's hard to know, but this is evidence of enmeshment, bad boundaries, parentification, and a self-esteem by helping, right? So codependent people often early in life learn that their only worth and a good source of self-esteem is when they're helping people who have problems. So as a child, uh, Bella strove, and as a child, Bella strove to be a very good student. She got straight A's. So she's trying to be like the good one, right? She's trying to be the competent one, even though deep down she doesn't believe she is. She goes to Forks, Washington, and there's some vampires there for some reason, and she is attracted to them. And all the other kids talk about the Cullens as, you know, there's something wrong with those people. She's particularly attracted to Edward, right? Now, Edward has major problems. <laughs> if you just, again, this is, you know, it's a supernatural, silly story, but if you just look at it through a codependency lens, um, he... Uh, Edward has a deep need to kill and drink human blood. I would call that a problem. Maybe even an addiction, right? Uh, he has massive secrets. He's a criminal. He's a he's violent. He wants to kill Bella and eat her and drink her blood. <laughs> like Edward is massively a chaotic underfunctioner, right? He is not functioning. His life is not under control. There's something deeply wrong with him. He has something wrong with him, okay? But he needs her, right? He needs her to help him with his problem. And she has a massive attraction to him. She could have been attracted to anyone in that school, but she was attracted to the one person who wants to kill her and eat and drink her blood and who has an addiction essentially to drinking, her, you know, her blood, <laughs> people like her and her blood and has, right? So she has a massive attraction to him and she feels needed by him and she minimizes his problem she self-sacrifices throughout the books, right? In a variety of ways. Um, and she, uh, 
tries to overfunction for him. Not entirely, right? She, I don't know how much advice she was giving to him and, and micromanaging his life. I, I don't know if there was a lot of that. But, but it is, you know, uh, it, it looked at in a certain way. It's a, it's a chameleon codependent, right? Where she, you know, spoiler alert, she, you know, becomes vampire, right? She becomes a vampire. Does she become a vampire? So she is... She defines her. So again, let's look at let's look at the core components of codependency. A deep need to feel needed uh, by someone who has a problem. Um, enmeshment, enabling, rescuing, denial. A focus on others, self sacrifice. You know, low self esteem, lack of connection to the self, and so. You know, all those things are there, arguably, with Bella. And her way of of dealing with this is to is to be like the underfunctioner. And when when you when you become like the underfunctioner, like Sandy or like Bella, you are helping the underfunctioner, at least temporarily, by validating them. You're saying your problem is is okay because look at me I'm becoming like you I'm validating you by becoming like you and I'm validating you by you know meeting you on on your turf and I'm making it helpful for you to have a relationship with someone like me because I'm just I'm just becoming like you I'm and you know you don't have to change you know the chameleon codependent is don't change don't worry about it I will change for you is the thing, you know, I will sacrifice myself for you. So that's another type of, it's not that super common type. Uh, another uh, fictional character is Helen Hunt in as good as it gets with Jack Nicholson, you know, the Helen Hunt character. So Jack Nicholson in as good as it gets, if you haven't seen the movie is someone who suffers from OCD, but, and I've talked about this movie many times, they conflate OCD with grumpiness. Jack Nicholson is, you know, held up as often. He's like, oh, he has OCD. Okay, fine. He, he does. He has a, a pretty mild case of it, honestly, particularly by the end. But Jack Nicholson's character's problem isn't OCD. It's he's a jerk. <laughs> People with OCD are not jerks. They have OCD. Jack Nicholson is a jerk. He's grumpy. He's mean to people. He's judgmental. He's critical. He's, you know, he's off-putting. That's a problem. And Helen Hunt is attracted to that. You know, in, in, in some ways, you could almost consider the codependent, chaotic, underfunctioner as almost like the quintessential rom-com or, or one quintessential rom-com in America, you know, with uh, Homer Simpson and, and Marge. There's this, or the Beauty and the Beast is another one. It's this trope or archetype of you know, men are men and they all have problems and, you know, women need to mother the men and rein them in, essentially. And so that's kind of present here in, and this is why, you know, the feminists back in the day and today, to some extent, would critique the idea of codependency because it just seemed like it was an outgrowth of that trope, which it, you know, sometimes was. Anyway, so in As Good As It Gets, Jack Nicholson's character is a grump and he's mean and he's a jerk. And Helen Hunt is weirdly attracted to him for unknown reasons. 
probably because of a deep need to overfunction. You know, who better to match up with if you're a codependent person than someone like Jack Nicholson's character who's just, you know, always such a jerk and has a major problem with OCD, right? So, and Jack Nicholson's alone and obviously needy. And so Helen Hunt could feel like I could be his mother. I could overfunction for him. I could... Buff, I could be a buffer for him between him and other people. I could be needed by him. That'll make me feel good. I'll enable, I'll enmesh with him. I'll go into denial about what kind of a jerk face he is and about, you know, what this relationship actually means, you know, all that kind of stuff. And so that's another example of, you know, fictional, you know, they don't go into detail in Helen Hunt's schemas, so we don't really know. Another example is you have a woman, a wife, who is married to someone with narcissistic personality disorder. And they're married for 30 years. And she, the wife, has codependent personality, you know, developed it long before, meaning the guy with narcissism. But when she met him, it fit well because because of his narcissistic personality, he has massive problems. He has emotional problems. He has relationship problems. He has addiction problems. And the wife makes up for it. You know, she enables it. She overfunctions. And she becomes a chameleon. You know, she he he's too strong-headed and stubborn to help him by micromanaging him. He's too dominant to be dominant and controlling over him. And so the only choice she has is to be a chameleon. And so what she does is she accommodates for him and also enters his narcissistic world, his narcissistic supply. So she ends up dedicating a good portion of her time to accommodating his narcissism by praising him a lot and by listening. You know, he might lecture her or just want to talk for hours and hours and she just adjusts. She just listens. So this is what I'm terming um, a chameleon version of codependency. She has all the core components. She has schemas of everything will fall apart if I don't fix this problem. Uh, She derives purpose through distressing relationships and caretaking for them. She believes that if she doesn't enmesh, everything will fall apart. If I don't rescue, everything will fall apart. She's in denial of her of her in, enabling and of his problem. And the way that she helps him, she doesn't micromanage, she doesn't control. She adjusts to his narcissistic personality by listening to his lectures, by praising him, by maybe even kind of becoming like him a little bit by being interested in things he's interested in by just putting her whole self aside. And by doing this, she calms him down and perpetuates his problem. And two, she uh, gets to deny herself, right? Because uh, if she had to face herself, she, you know, there's emptiness there that she would experience anyway. So that's another example. And there, there are more, but... Um, you know, I hope you get my point. So when you email me with your follow-up, 
maybe try to delineate, you know, was it helpful? And you could have combinations, obviously, but was it helpful codependent? Was it controlling codependent? Was it chameleon codependent? Or some other type, you know, I, I'm open. I'm open to hearing it. Because, you know, I hope that it, it's, for, it's similar for you as it is for me. You know, by the time I really know something and I start to develop a typology, I feel like I really get the construct, you know? Like, I feel like when you look at these three types... One, you're like, oh, I know someone like that. Two, it, you know, if you look at what is the foundation underneath, because they look very different. You know, the chameleon codependent looks very different from the controlling codependent, but the foundation is the same. In some ways, you can consider it a, a, a version of schema therapy, right? The, the model proposes that when we have these uh, maladaptive schemas, we have three options of coping. We can either surrender or we can overcompensate or we can avoid, right? So with being a helpful codependent, you could almost consider it to be the avoidance of the schema. You know, the schema is everything will fall apart if I don't fix their problem. So I can avoid having to face this problem by always protecting them from their problem. You know, so nothing bad will happen. With the controlling codependent, this is an overcompensation. You could, you could frame it that way. Again, the schema is everything will fall fall apart if I don't micromanage their problem. So I'm going to overcompensate for that maladaptive way of seeing the world by controlling them. So if I just control them, then I've eliminated their problem essentially, and then. The chameleon is a surrender to the schema. Again, the schema is everything will fall apart if I don't fix their maladaptive problem. I surrender. I give up. I'll just become the problem. I'll become like the underfunctioner, and I just give up. I'll just you know be consumed by the problem. So it's sort of a, a surrendering to the schema. Okay, so let's go on to cause. What is the cause of codependency? Well, I've basically already been talking about it, but just going over some of the research findings, of which it's kind of limited, but there's research. Um, originally, it was assumed that substance abuse in family of origin was a cause of codependency. This was you know, probably anecdotally derived early in the Alcoholics Anonymous days, chemical, early chemical dependency dogma, that the alcoholic had a disease, and whoever matches up with the alcoholic, the co-alcoholic, the codependent, must have emerged from a similar diseased family of origin in which there was substance addiction. But a number of studies have found that contrary to this common wisdom, Codependent individuals do not necessarily emerge from a family of origin with substance abuse. In fact, it's it's not correlated at all, really. So, in other words, if you have if you emerge from a family of origin with addiction, um, you're no more likely to develop codependency than if you uh, emerge from a family without without um, addiction. So, research looked at other uh, experiences growing up that might contribute to the development of codependency, and they found the following. Perceived parental conflict, family conflict, parental coercion, you know, control, controlling parents, um, lack of communication from parents, and non-nurturing parents. 
So when you put all these things together, you're looking at family conflict, cold parents, non-neglecting parents, uh, not a lot of connection with parents, and potentially controlling parents. And uh, so, you know, uh, what I would say is like, you know, just family problems. (laughs) You know, if you merge from a family of origin that has family problems, which, of course, there's a lot of different kinds of that, and a lot of people, you know, have histories like that, then you have a greater likelihood of of developing codependency. But um, when I think about it and when I look at the research and when I think about uh, the construct that I'm um, proposing, here is my take on the cause of codependency. And this is kind of review because I've been alluding to this, but codependents learned that everything will fall apart if they don't vigilantly vigilantly micromanage loved ones. So, for example, I had a client once years ago who grew up with a father who was an alcoholic, but more importantly, more relevantly, he was very scary and violent and would threaten to kill people when he was extremely drunk. And my client, as a child, grew up in a large family, lots of siblings, but it was her job as the... I don't know, the the parentified one in the family, to take care of the father. She was the father's best friend. Of all the siblings, she was the one who connected with the father the most. And so when he was violent and threatening and drunk and chaotic, she uh, considered it her job and the family considered it her job and the father considered it her job to take care of him and to calm him down. And so she would hang out with him while he sobered up. And it was a very scary thing for her. And also she felt very responsible at the age of like seven, you know, we're talking like seven to 18. It was her responsibility. So she was given this very clear message that everything will fall apart. If you don't vigilantly micromanage your father and your father is completely out of control. So through that experience, it locked in this neuronal uh, reality for her that Unless she is constantly managing a self-destructive person, danger will occur. So uh, she grew up to have codependent personality and was, you know, attracted to and locked in with underfunctioning individuals. So they learned as children, these people, and that's just one example, you know, there's other roads to codependency, but that's just one example, a very sort of obvious example. So these people, codependent people, can only get safety and attunement by managing someone else's problem while ignoring their own problems. So they, everyone wants safety, everyone wants attunement, and for codependent people, they believe they can only get it by being codependent and by ignoring their own problems because if they focus on their problems, that distracts them from other people. And they learned that their problems don't matter and that if they focus on their problems, it'll just be painful because they'll realize that no one cares about their feelings. And they also get their self-esteem by being needed by others, right? So that, you know, they develop schemas that I've been talking about that the world is scary and that bad things are around every corner. Other people's need them uh, to micromanage them or else um, that they don't matter, that their only worth is being useful Um, that kind of thing. And this, of course, leads to enmeshment and enabling and rescuing and denial, self-sacrifice, possibly controlling behaviors, 
um, not being able to tolerate differentiated behaviors, be, uh, relationships, because it makes them face themselves. So what exactly happens, you know, generally speaking, is um, a lack of attunement, a message that they don't really matter, a message that their worth is taking care of other people, and a message that scary things are around every corner. And the child might be parentified, meaning that the child might be taking care of their siblings or their parents in an age-inappropriate way. They might be modeled codependency. So they might see, you know, say their mom has bipolar and is not medicated, not treated, is all over the place, and the father is codependent to the mother and the child watches the father and then becomes codependent himself because he's modeling after his own father's codependency. Maybe uh, as a child, you were made to feel superior because you had a bad sibling. You know, sometimes if you have the, an underfunctioning sibling and you're the good sibling, you can be made to feel like your only uh, worth is the fact that you are, you behave yourself in comparison to the other person that can maybe be breeding grounds for codependency. Other factors, uh, you know, one to consider is sexism, that a lot of women are pushed into codependency because society will give messages to girls and women that their only worth is taking care of people and that it's their job to make up for men's, you know, inadequacies. Um, There's, you know, some pretty deep, Messages and it's all over the place in media. You know, The Simpsons, for example, and and The Simpsons are not the only show that has that kind of dynamic, right? It's it's The Family Guy, uh, uh, you know, All in the Family. A lot of sitcoms, honestly, have this trope of the idiot, underfunctioning husband and the uh, nagging, overfunctioning uh, wife. All right, so let's go into what. Codependency is not. So I've been using the word overfunctioning as a, a component of codependency, but I'm also going to use overfunctioning as something that is different. You know, if if only, or maybe the way to put it, maybe I should change it in my my note. Only overfunctioning, um, enabling only that kind of. So if you're only overfunctioning, and that's all you're doing, you're not enabling and you don't have all these other things. So let me explain. Uh, only overfunctioning is very similar to codependency um, in that when you're overfunctioning with an underfunctioner, you're overresponsible. You feel as though the underfunctioner is incapable. You, as an overfunctioner, will often give advice. You worry about the underfunctioner. You feel responsible for the underfunctional underfunctioner. You have goals for the underfunctioner. You periodically will burn out and dislike always being the responsible one. You might be enmeshed and fused with the underfunctioner. But there are differences between just overfunctioning and being codependent. Overfunctioning is not necessarily a personality disorder. The overfunctioner might be able to change quickly. They're just playing a needed role in the current system. Whereas a codependent person, in my model anyway, cannot adjust quickly and will find someone else to fill that role. So if you find someone who is, you know, let's say that you're not codependent and you fall in love with someone and six months in, you discover that they have a massive addiction problem and 
they start to fall apart. And because you love them, you start to take care of them. And maybe even you start enabling them a little bit. You start picking up after them. You start making excuses for them. You start being a cheerleader for them, that kind of thing. And five years later, it becomes too much. You divorce and you move on and then you date someone else. But you don't overfunction for the next person because you don't need to overfunction. You don't have a personality distortion that uh, you know sees the world differently in a distorted way. You just were pushed into an overfunctioning role. It didn't emerge from your personality. It emerged circumstantially. So you can overfunction, and 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 this is why I want to delineate between these two because a lot of people will call that person codependent. They will say. You know, if you're enabling, you're, co- you're codependent. And that, that doesn't make any sense to me because anyone can be pushed into enabling or over-functioning, right? But to label someone, you are codependent. You know, that, that sounds like you're labeling someone's personality. You know, you're, you're saying independent of the relationship you're in, you are codependent, right? And so uh, I want to delineate that by using a very well-established word in Bowenian and family therapy called overfunctioning, which is what I'm describing. You know, that you are systemically pushed into a role of overfunctioning. Now, you could also have uh, chronic overfunctioning relationships, but your personality, you don't need to be in those relationships. You're just being periodically or habitually shoved into a role of our functioning, but, but you don't need it. You know, it's, it's not a desperate act on your half, on your behalf. It's just something of a habit of yours or something, you know? And if you were, uh, shown like over functioners, when you point out that they're over functioning, they quickly will stop over functioning They're Oh yeah. Wow. I need to stop doing that. They're, they're flexible. They see it. They're not defensive about it. Codependent people, you confront them on their codependency, they don't take it well. They're in denial. You know, they need their codependency. So, you know, that is uh, something to think about. Also, overfunctioners might be in connection with the self, meaning that it's not a personality disorder. So, overfunctioners might actually know their needs and know their emotions much better than someone who's codependent. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. Uh, also, let's look at dependent personality disorder. So codependency is not only over-functioning, and it's also not dependent personality disorder. These are very different things. It's quite obvious to me. They're often conflated. I don't understand why people conflate dependent personality disorder with codependency. I've talked about it already, but to be systematic here, um, the core schema of dependent personality is a belief that they are deeply incompetent and need their support person to do all things for them. Codependent people are the opposite from dependent person personality people. Codependent people are the support person, and they often believe they are more competent than others, particularly the underfunctioner. So again, dependent people, the 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 core characteristic of dependent personality is they deeply believe they're incompetent and need help from someone else. Codependent people are the helpers. (laughs) So you see how now there can be rare instances where you can be both codependent and dependent, like maybe a chameleon type of dependent, but it's pretty rare, but it can happen. Um, And, uh, but you know, it's certainly not, um, 
an indication that these two things are the same thing. So I hope that people understand it. No, okay, so let's look at the symptoms uh, more. Let's stretch them out a little bit more in terms of dependent personality disorder. So, um, well, actually, let's just go to the types because I think that elucidates it. So these, these are my six types. They're based on Milan's types. Number one is separation anxiety dependent. So this person feels vulnerable to abandonment. They're uh, desperately clingy. So the dependent person wants to be in proximity to their support person. Number two is the enmeshed dependent. This dependent person and dependent personality disordered people typically have more than one of these types. Um, so the, the second one is enmeshed dependent. These, these dependent people will merge with someone else and they will give up their identity for someone else. So you can see how this would potentially match up with chameleon, you know. Um, but, but a deep difference between dependent, like an, an enmeshed dependent and a chameleon codependent, is the chameleon codependent is motivated by a schema of I must save someone else from their problem. Dependent people are so preoccupied with their own problems, they don't have time to think about other people's problems. Dependent people don't tend to take care of others because they are the ones being taken care of. They don't believe they're competent enough to take care of others, and they're massively overwhelmed by their own needs. So an enmeshed dependent might look chameleon-like, but they're, pro I don't know, as I, the more I talk about it, I'm wondering if we could ever have a dependent personality disordered individual be a codependent. And maybe there's some rare instances. Anyway, third type of dependent personality is childlike dependent. So this person's immature, incapable of adulting. Number four is the compliant and eager dependent. So this person is eagerly compliant. Like, let me, you know, tell me what to do. And they are very submissive. And they might be very histrionic in their agreeableness, just over the top. Oh, my God. You know, you're the master. Tell me what to do. Number five is the life avoidant de dependent. This person will seek a very limited and easy life. They refuse to deal with anything that could cause them any, any difficult or, you know, strife for them. They typically will live with their parents, this kind of thing. And the number six, the final type that I have here is the passive aggressive dependent. This person is often more struggling overtly between their dependence and independence. They can be compliant, but they can also be secretly, but they're often secretly rageful. They can be quietly stubborn and they have hidden hostility, either through cheating or quiet resentment or purposely forgetting things. You know, they'll, they'll get you back because you are taking care of them. So passive aggressive people will, uh, passive aggressive dependent people will find a support person that they will depend on, but they will secretly and in a hidden way get back at that support person for being in control of them. Okay, so that is very different from codependency. If there's one thing that you learn from this deep dive, it is that dependency is not, if not the opposite thing, than codependency. And I understand why people mix it up because those words are, there's just two letters different, but codependent derives from co-alcoholic, the co-pilot in the addiction. Dependent personality is someone who is overly dependent. Now let's go to enabling only. So similar to um, over-functioning, if you're only enabling, um, then and, you're, and you don't have a need to enable, and you don't have all the distortions of codependent personality, then you don't have codependent personality. Uh, 
like with the overfunctioning, sometimes you're just circumstantially pushed into a circumstance where you're enabling because you're terrified, you know, like going back to that example of you marry someone and then uh, six years later they become addicted to heroin and you're terrified they're going to lose their job and, and you're a stay at home parent and your, your spouse works for a living and you're terrified if your spouse loses uh, their job that, everything will fall apart and you won't be able to pay your bills for your kids, all that kind of stuff. So you start enabling, you start making excuses uh, for, you start minimizing, you know? So uh, that's enabling. Uh, but you but you don't need to do that. You, you didn't look for someone to take care of. You just found yourself in a situation that kind of forced you into, into enabling. All right, let's talk about pro-dependence. So... Authors have developed this term called prodependence as an alternative to the concept codependence uh, in an attempt to destigmatize and depathologize codependency, which is fine. You know, particularly if you're into this sort of therapy style, you know, brief therapies, solution focused therapies, um, what they call postmodern or strength based therapies, you know, it it requires that you have strength-based ways of describing things and codependency is inherently uh, deficit-based. Um, also, if the codependent client needs a more strength-based narrative, you know, like someone comes into you who has been suffering from codependency for their whole life, or at least many years, and they're suffering, you know. They're dealing with a partner who has a lot of problems, maybe even abusive to the codependent person. And then you just start piling on and you're just like, you know what? You have this thing called codependency. Now it can be a lot. And so maybe having this other way of describing it, that's also accurate might be more helpful and, and, you know, might be really great to say, you know, you know, this thing called codependence. Well, there's all this thing called prodependence. So basically the model points out the client's strengths, you know, praises them for trying to help the other, you know, and being attachment oriented, you know, the pro-dependence also is in response to, you know, the feminist critique uh, to some extent, the pro-dependence model praises the person for being loving and caring and for being able to handle stressful situations. So, you know, the person comes in and you're just like, look at you, you know, you're, you're strong. You can handle difficult situations. You care. You've been, you've been working really hard to help your family member. You know, that's, you know, it's, there's a lot of strengths there. There's a lot of goodness there. Whereas in some codependent circles or some, you know, CD substance abuse treatment circles, codependent people are vilified. You know, they're just like, uh, and I've seen it, not always, but I will be in a group with uh, people that are recovering from substance abuse and they'll talk really negatively about their quote unquote codependent partners and how they're always trying to drag them back into addiction, you know? So, so the pro the pro dependence model is in response to some of the destructive dogma in our field that believes that, like I've said before, you know, anyone in a relationship with someone struggling with an addiction is pathologically codependent. That doesn't make any sense. <laughs> so, it, it, uh, so the pro-dependence model is like, you know, uh, it, it points out the strengths instead of 
just automatically assuming there's something wrong with you because you're involved with someone who has an addiction. Um, also, codependents are sometimes called addicted to the addict and are therefore equally to blame, if not more to blame, for the problem in the addiction, which is ridiculous. I mean, certainly it, that can happen, but just to assume that. So prodependence just tries to get away from that whole thing. And the model also uh, agrees that the prodependent person has problems that they need to work on, but they believe that if we focus on the strengths and get them through the crisis, they'll eventually come back around to therapy and say, you know what, I think I need to work on some childhood issues that led me to being enmeshed with the person with the addiction. So it just assumes like, look, let's point out strengths, let's help them get through the crisis, let's pump them up, let's you know, get them going in the right direction. Um, for themselves, drawing, drawing boundaries. You know, the pro-dependent model doesn't say go back to the addict. It's just like, let's try to get your life in order sort of a thing. And then it assumes that eventually they'll come back around. But in my opinion, if we go too far down the pro-dependent dogma, we can miss the issues that clients face and we won't be able to help them for that. So, you know, I, I like the strength-based pro-dependent Recommendations, but I don't adhere to it entirely, obviously, since I've been talking about personality disorders this whole time. The other uh, concept that you'll see um, as being used as a synonym for codependency is addicted to relationships. You'll hear people say, oh my God, she's addicted to relationships or love addicts, this kind of thing. And uh, I, this is even further into pop psychology or lay person psychology. And the, the concept of being addicted to relationships is very difficult for me to nail down in terms of what people are talking about. I think what often is observed in, in these people is that they need a relationship to be happy and they can't be alone and they stay in harmful relationships too long. And so therefore they're love addicts or they're addicted to relationships. And, you know, if this model helps people, then, you know, God bless people. But to me, this sounds like a lot of different things. It sounds like borderline. It sounds like dependency. It sounds like complex PTSD. It sounds like codependency. It sounds like overfunctioning. It sounds like domestic violence victims, you know, needing to be in a relationship to be happy and you know, the inability to be alone and staying in harmful relationships too long, that describes a lot of different people. Again, if this is, there are support groups for love addicts, love addicts anonymous, this kind of thing. And if people are getting helped by that, then yes, 100%. But in terms of clinical constructs and concepts, the idea of love addiction doesn't make a lot of sense. And frankly, it kind of fits into this blaming, right? It's like, because one, we tend to, as a society, look at addicts as there's something wrong with you. You have to, you have to admit there's something wrong with you if you're an addict, right? That's the first step, which is true, but um, for the most part. But, you know, say someone has borderline personality disorder. I talk about that a lot. And they have a hard time being alone because they have a lot of abandonment trauma. And they stay in harmful relationships too long because they have abandonment trauma. And... They need to be in a relationship to be happy because they have abandonment trauma. And then they come across this idea called addicted to relationships. And they go through this 12-step program trying to 
recover from their addiction to relationships. I just don't think that's going to be helpful. You know, the borderline person needs to uh, get help with their emotional re- regulation. They need to have corrective experiences where they actually bond with other people. Um, and uh, love addicts would say, you know, don't bond with anyone if you're a love addict because that's, I mean, I'm oversimplifying, but anyway. Yeah. So addicting to relationships is often discussed in the same paragraphs as codependency online and in popular media. And I just wanted to mention it as something I don't really get. <laughs> the other uh, experience that's similar to just over-functioning or just enabling, but it doesn't emerge from your personality is just being in a bad relationship. You know, sometimes it's just, you're just randomly in a bad relationship. You pick, you know, for those of you who have dated a lot of people and been in a fair amount of monogamous relate or just relationships with people, you could probably, you know, for you, for you people who are, are not codependent, I think all of us can point back to one relationship and say that was, that was a bad relationship with someone, you know, that person was abusive or alcoholic or someone who didn't consider other people's feelings. You know, I dated a, you know, a Homer Simpson for a while, or I dated an Edward Cullen for a while, you know, but that wasn't my, my tendency. I, I just, I just randomly met the wrong person. And while I was with that person, I was pushed into codependent-like behavior in that I enabled or overfunctioned or made excuses or saved them or chameleoned to them. But as soon as I was done with that relationship, I, I didn't need to do that anymore. And I stopped doing that. Right. So I was just I was just acting codependent because I was trying to survive. The last uh, construct that I see people throwing around a lot that I think they mean as a synonym for codependent is just two people who are pathologically dependent on each other. So you'll find like, um, you know, a mother daughter pair who spend all their time together and it's, uh, you know, being judged from the outside. It's like, they're too dependent on each other. They don't have enough, um, individuality. They're codependent. So this is one of those lay persons, um, you know, applications of the term codependent. Or you have two friends in high school who spend all their time together. They don't have any other friends and they, you know, spend the night at each other's houses and they, they don't date. They, they're they just, you know, friend, friend, friend time, best friend time, best friend time. And they dress the same and they do everything. They're codependent. No. <laughs> They're, it, according to my definition of codependent, they're not codependent. According, according to any of the definitions, they're, they're not really, maybe according to some of the bad definitions, they're codependent, but they're not codependent. And I think it's because, you know, it has that word co, right? Because when you think of like co-workers or co-pilots, you think of people that are doing things together and then, and you think, oh, they're dependent on each other. So they're codependent. No. So, so especially if you're a clinician out there, stop using codependent in this way. Um, all right. So in 1986, Cermak, a author, clinical author, proposed, uh, he wrote a book and he proposed, uh, let's see, what was the name of the book? <laughs> uh, let me look up the name of the book. It's Diagnosing and Treating Codependence by Tim and Cermak. So, uh, Tim and Cermak proposed the uh, DSM criteria 
uh, for uh, one of the DSMs, which would have been the next DSM back then, maybe the 3R, I'm guessing, or wait, no, 3, 4, yeah, maybe 3R. Anyway, so CIRMAC proposed, they actually wanted codependency to become a diagnosis in the DSM. And there was some, there was a fair amount of movement around it. So CIRMAC proposed criteria, which is always the beginning of any kind of proposal to get something in the DSM is like, okay, what are the criteria? You know, so essentially it's a definition, right? So let's read it. And I'll comment on each of the criterion on each of the criteria, because uh, some of them are good and some of them are weird. Continued investment of self-esteem in the ability to control both oneself and others in the face of serious adverse consequences. So, Investment of self-esteem, okay, so I think I can get behind that, in the ability to control both oneself and others in the face of serious adverse consequences. So this is a weird way of describing what I've been describing, but I, you know, I think it, it kind of gets there in terms of the core of codependency, you know, the, the need to control someone else in the face of serious adverse consequences. Um, but the the ability to control both oneself to control oneself like I, I don't really get that one assumption of responsibility for meeting others' needs to the exclusion of acknowledging one's own yeah love that one that one makes total sense anxiety and boundary distortions relative to intimacy and separation anxiety and boundary distortions relative to intimacy and separation I'm not sure exactly what that means, but what I think that means is, uh, in you know, enmeshment based on anxiety uh, because of, I don't know, I don't know what this intimacy and separation part is, but I think that's what that means. Enmeshment in relationships with personality disordered, chemically dependent, or other codependent, or impulse disordered individuals. Okay. So enmeshment in relationships with personality disordered people, okay, with chemically dependent people, okay, with other codependent people, uh, that one doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Maybe it would, but uh, it's, it's not something I saw a lot of. Or impulse disordered individuals. Yeah. So that's how I see it. It's like you got your, you got your people suffering from addiction. You got your personality disordered people, your narcissistic, your borderline, and then you have your impulse disorder people. You know, that's why I was saying like rage disorder or sometimes borderline people or sorry, bipolar people will have impulse, uh, you know, difficulties, Psych psychopaths too, obviously. Um, so, th so that makes sense. But the other codependent thing, I, I don't really know what that means. Anyway. And then. Uh, Sir Max says three of the following must be present. So all of those need to be present. And then three of the following. Excessive reliance on denial. Okay, yeah, totally. Uh, lots of denial with codependency. Constriction of emotions. Um, with or without dramatic outbursts. Yeah, um, certainly that could happen, right? Because you're, you're self-sacrificing as a codependent. You're denying the self. You're stressed out a lot. And so you are constricting your emotions and you may or may not have dramatic outbursts occasionally because you can't take it anymore. Um, but I wouldn't call that like a core component of codependency. It just seems kind of like a little ancillary, but anyway. Depression is one of the, you know, three or more of the following, excessive reliance and denial, constriction of emotion, and depression. 
Yeah, certainly codependent people, the more codependent you are, the more unrecovered, untherapized you are, the more likely you are to become depressed. Sure. Hypervigilance. Yes, 100%. Compulsions. Just, just the word compulsions is one of the criteria. I have no idea what they're talking about here. Just if you're codependent, you will have compulsions. I, I don't know if they're referring to like because of the stress you might develop compulsions or something. I don't know. Um, anxiety. Yeah, uh, certainly. Hypervigilance, anxiety. Substance use disorder. So this is kind of funny that one of the criteria for codependency, according to CIRMAC, is being sub having a substance use disorder yourself. You know, I yeah, certainly some codependent people might develop a substance use problem, but I don't think it needs to be included in one as a criteria, you know. Um criterion has been or is the victim of recurrent physical or sexual abuse. This is extremely general. <laughs> Just like um you know, a codependent person, one of the criteria is You've been abused growing up. Like that's kind of not a lot of DSM criteria have, uh, you know, include that because most people have been abused. A lot of people have been abused. And if you have a DSM diagnosis, there's a good chance you were abused. Anyway, stress related medical illnesses. Okay. Actually, this is, um, you know, something I haven't talked about yet uh, much, but, you know, when we're stressed out, uh, and when and we're when we're self-sacrificing, particularly, we are more prone to developing somatic, uh, you know, stress-induced medical problems. You know, chronic pain, fatigue, headaches, uh, gastrointestinal problems, heart murmurs. You know, all these things can be stress-induced, and being codependent is very stressful. So you can imagine, and with the added component of denying the self, then you're even more likely to um, have a conversion. You know, your body is telling you, look, pay attention. Um, I'm falling apart emotionally, so I'm going to show you physically. And the last criterion is, has remained in a primary relationship with a person who continues to recreationally use drug for at least two years without seeking outside help. Um yeah, this is pretty specific, but I agree. You know, I, I don't know what I think about that in particular, but yeah, I can get behind that. You know, has remained in a primary relationship with a person. So primary meaning like a spousal or a parent child or something or friend with a person who continues to recreationally use drugs for at least two years without seeking outside help. Pretty common for codependent people, but obviously not all codependent people are matched up with people suffering from addiction. All right. So let's go on to two measures, uh, two instruments, two assessment tools for assessing if someone is codependent or not. So I'm going to read the 16 items. This is the Span-Fisher codependency scale developed in 1991. So the more of these you agree with, the more the more codependent you are according to this measure. And, and I can get behind most of this, but a couple of them I'm like, huh? Um, including the first one. So number one is, it is hard for me to make decisions. This is not, a, in my opinion, a core component of codependency. The, all the rest of them um, are for the most part. But it's hard for me to make decisions. That's right down the middle of dependent personality. And to me, 
really has nothing to do with codependency. Uh, number two, it is hard for me to say no. This is pretty quintessential dependent personality and could be a part of codependency in that uh, when you are linked and meshed with an underfunctioner, it might be hard for you to say no when they ask for help, that kind of thing. Number three, it is hard for me to accept compliments graciously. So I talked about this earlier, that when you're other focused and you're, I didn't go into detail. So when we're young, we are desperate for compliments. We want to be praised. And we're maybe even doing behaviors to elicit praise from others. And when things are going well, we get enough praise. When things are not going well, we don't get praise. And when a lot of codependent people, not everyone, were treated in a way in which they weren't given enough praise. And so as a three-year-old, as a seven-year-old, you're reaching out for praise and you're not getting it. And eventually you just kind of give up and you say, I guess I don't matter. Uh, I shouldn't ask for praise because I'm not going to get it. Um, I'm worthless, you know, this kind of thing. And then as an adult, you're 35 years old and someone compliments you out of the blue at work. Somebody like you, you know, you, you're really good at your job, you know, or you're very helpful. Well, you would think that the codependent person would be like, yay, someone's finally giving me um, a compliment. Someone's finally praising me. Someone's finally acknowledging me. I've always wanted that. Well, it's true that they've always wanted it. But to enter into a conversation where the focus is on the codependent is extremely scary. Because like I was saying earlier, it, it, takes the focus off the other person, which they're desperate to continue because of their needs, but also to open up the, uh, the door to compliments. You know, if I'm, if, if I'm codependent and I'm, and I, I gave up a long time ago on seeking approval, you know, overtly and seeking compliments and praise. And I'm very hurt by it, by the way. And then you compliment me. If I accept it, I have to open my heart I have to open my soul and sort of passively admit that I like being praised and I want to be praised. But I learned long ago to admit that to anyone, including myself, was connected with pain because I never got praised. Does that make sense? You know, it's sort of like um, when my mom had a daycare in our house growing up and I observed child behavior and... Um, development. I observed my mom just masterfully control 10 kids under the age of five and make them feel good about themselves. And, um, the kids would be fine all day long. You know, uh, they, they, when they, when the parents dropped them off at, at our house and our house was not big. So pretty much everything that was happening in my mom's daycare, uh, I saw every I saw every bit of it. I mean, they, the kids even slept in my bedroom. And, and so, um, you know, our house was uh, very small. And so I, I couldn't get away from what was happening. But anyway, so I um, would observe that when the parents would come get the kids, the kids would uh, see the parents, you know, the kids would be like having a good time. They're fine. They're regulated. The parent walks in and they, and the kid would fall apart and they'd start crying. And I think it relates to that in that they wanted the parent, they didn't want the parents to leave them at a daycare, but eventually they just kind of got used to it, but they kind of gave up, 
you know they kind of kind of gave up but then when they when they saw the parents uh, arriving they their their desperation for closeness with their parents would suddenly emerge even though it was kind of below the surface all the time um uh, another situation that i would see that's kind of analogous to this um uh, not accepting compliments graciously as the codependent person is you know i'll be working with a couple and there's a lot of conflict and a lot of resentment building up over years and i will get the you know say i'll get the husband to be loving to the wife you know i'll get him to say something nice and the wife has been explicit that she wants that and so i finally get the husband to do it and then the wife will get real angry she'll be like you know just in a really bad mood and at first, when I would see this, it would confuse me. I'd say, like, you've been asking for niceness from your husband for weeks now. I finally got him to do something nice, and, and, you, and you made it worse. You like, you, like, rejected it and got angry. Well, it's because a long time ago, the wife, and, you know, out of desperation and need, she just gave up, and she turned herself off to the desire to have it be nice. And so... For him to be nice, she has to give up that defense. She has to say, okay, I'm going to let down this wall. Um, but the wall was very helpful. And so there's an initial response of rejection because it's like, oh, no, 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 don't let me, don't, don't make me take down this wall because if I, if I take down this wall and I accept your niceness, then I'm pretty sure you're going to hurt me, you know, because that's what happened in the past. And so, even though you're being nice, I'm going to reject it. You know, so in the same way that a codependent person, when you praise them, they're like, "Oh, in order for me to accept this praise, I have to let my wall down," and that's not okay. And so I'm going to push back, and I'm going to, I'm going to say, "Oh, no, 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 don't, no, no, I'm not here to get compliments." Or um, they might reflect back, say, "No, no, no, you're the good person," you know, that kind of thing. Number four, sometimes I almost. Uh, sometimes I almost feel bored or empty if I don't have problems to focus on. Yeah, that's a pretty codependent thing. Number five, I usually do things for other people that they are capable of doing for themselves. Yes, that's very codependent. Number six, when I do something nice for myself, I usually feel guilty. Number seven, I worry very much. Number eight, I tell myself that things will get better when the people in my life change what they are doing. So this is quintessential codependent. So so the, just chiming in here on this this instrument, the Spanfisher codependency scale from 1991 is very good, I will say. <laughs> if you read these, you know, these statements, I will tell myself that things will get better when the people in my life change what they are doing. I don't necessarily like the way that's phrased, but yeah, that's pretty quintessential codependency. Number 9. I seem to have relationships where I am always there for them, but they are rarely there for me. Number 10, sometimes I get focused on one person to the extent of neglecting other relationships and responsibilities. 11, I seem to get into relationships that are painful for me. 12, I don't usually let others see the real me. 13, when someone upsets me, I will hold it in for a long time, but once in a while I explode. 
14. I will usually go to any lengths to avoid open conflict. 15. I often have a sense of dread or impending doom. Yes, just chiming in here. Absolutely. It's a huge one with codependency. Uh, you know, impending doom, a sense of dread. That's what I was talking about. You know, danger is around every corner. My way of managing that is to manage the other person, you know, so that nothing bad will happen to them. 16. I often put the needs of others ahead of my own. So, 16 items, the more you agree with those, the more likely you suffer from codependent personality. Now, you recognize that they're not saying, you know, your current partner, you know, they're just saying, um, uh, let's see, uh, what was it? I seem to get into relationships that are painful for me. So it's not like you're in a painful relationship right now. It's I habitually get into relationships that are painful for me. Right. I worry very much. So you notice that none of the things on this uh, scale are asking, like, are you involved with someone with an addiction? Because that is beside the point to the codependency personality. Whereas online and in some of the clinical literature and particularly among therapists who are who don't know what codependency is, you know, Anyway, <laughs> so so the Span Fisher codependency scale, uh, thumbs up. Aside from the very first item, which is it is hard for me to make decisions. Uh, that's not inherent to codependency in my experience. All right, another scale is the composite codependency scale. All right, let's let's read it. Um, because it is selfish, I cannot put my own needs before the needs of others. Because it is selfish, I cannot put my own needs before the needs of others. Yeah. Um, and again, it should be clear that this is not dependent personality, right? Because dependent personality people put their own needs before others. <laughs> it's the opposite, you know? Um, I try to control events and people through helplessness, guilt, coercion, threats, advice giving, manipulation, or domination. Um, this item, yeah, uh, yeah, okay. It makes me uncomfortable to share my feelings with others. Yeah, you know, not central to codependency, but certainly with some. It is my responsibility to devote my energies to helping loved ones solve their problems. Yeah, quintessential codependency. It is my responsibility to devote my energies to helping loved ones solve their problems. Again, the opposite of dependency. Um, what I feel isn't important as long as I, as long as those I love are okay. Yeah. What I feel is not important as long as those I love are okay. I feel compelled or forced to help people solve their problems by offering advice, etc. I am not open with others about my feelings, no matter what they are. Uh, yeah, uh, that one's a little, um, gray for me. I keep my feelings to myself and put up a good front. I push painful thoughts and feelings out of my awareness. My mood is unstable and affected by the problems and moods of those close to me. Yeah, I don't know. Th those last three are not quintessential. Th this composite codependency scale isn't as... I'm not vibing with it as much. I try to control events and how other people should behave. Yeah, big time codependency. I try to control events and I try to control other people. 
Feelings often build up inside of me that I do not express. Eh, maybe. I always put the needs of my family before my own needs. Yeah. No matter what happens, the family always comes first. Mm, maybe. I become afraid to let other people be who they are and allow events to happen naturally. Yes, this is quintessential codependency. I become afraid to let other people be who they are and allow events to happen naturally. Yeah, that's a big part of my treatment of codependent people is trying to get to a place where they can just allow things to happen naturally without them intervening and tolerate the um, the worry and tolerate and get habituated to the worry and to tolerate when bad things happen. You know, when they take their hands off the wheel and something bad happens to just get used to it. It's like, it's okay. You know, uh, they had a consequence and bad, something bad happened to them and, and you weren't, you could have saved them from that, but you didn't. And that's okay. And they will learn. And they blamed you for not being there because you're usually there. But over time, they will learn how to do things on their own. I often put the needs of others ahead of my own. I feel that without my effort and attention, everything will fall apart. Yes, quintessential. I feel that without my effort and attention, everything would fall apart. I live too much by other people's standards. Yeah, maybe. I keep my emotions under tight control. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of questions. There's like four or five ones that have to do with emotional suppression. And uh, certainly many codependent people are like that for various reasons that I've gone over, but not, not all of them. Okay. So let's talk about the history. Let's talk about the history and then we'll talk about the treatment and then we'll be done. And I'm over three hours into this and I thought it would take a lot longer. So I'm, I'm proud of myself for being, you know, concise on my standards. <laughs> Let's put it that way. All right, history. Alcoholics Anonymous formed in the early 20th century in the United States to help people stop drinking. Their literature and culture framed alcoholism mainly as a heterosexual man's problem. And so, therefore, whenever they discussed the spouses of alcoholics, it was always, the quote-unquote, the wives, you know. So there was this complete denial of women suffering from alcoholism back in the day. Maybe the prevalence rates were a lot higher for the men, but anyway. And of course, a denial of queer relationships, queer people. Bill Wilson, one of the founders of AA, wrote a chapter in the 1930s during the Great Depression to the wives. So this is like the first acknowledgement of what would later be called the codependence. And Bill Wilson wrote to the wives and encouraged the women to stand by their man, to lead a virtuous life, and to reject their own feelings of anger, because this will enable the husband to overcome his disease of alcoholism. So obviously there's a lot of sexist problems with this, that you're just telling women to put up with it and to live a virtuous life um, and to suppress their anger, <laughs> you know, but it's the 1930s and uh, what are you going to do? But we can look at it and say, no, no, Bill Wilson, no. Karen Horney, you'll hear me often re uh, refer to her, German psychoanalyst, wrote in 1941 about people that I think she was actually observing codependence. By the way, Karen Horney is one of the most underrated figures in our field, along with Sandor Ferenzi. 
There are so many concepts we use today that she pioneered, and you'll hear me referencing her often in my history segments. But anyway, Karen Horney in the 1930s was seemingly treating some codependent clients. She described them as having a moving toward personality, meaning that she saw them as oriented towards moving toward people in that they lean into relationships to reduce their anxiety. And these people were selfless. They put others, others' needs first. They were virtuous. They were martyrs. They were faithful. And they were overly forgiving. And so it looks like Karen Horney might have been the first to observe in her writings in 1941 what I would call codependent people. Um, because the Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, prior to Karen Horney, basically was just advising the women uh, and not really trying to help them or labeling them. Um, later, in the AA world, in the chemical dependency world, uh, other substances were being acknowledged. Like, oh, there's, you know, it's not just alcohol. There are other drugs that people become addicted to. So we, we, we can't call them alcoholics. We need to expand this to chemically dependent is what they landed on. And, you know, to this day, we still call people who work in this field chemical dependency professionals or CDPs, right? So, that, you know, and there's, I think, movements to change even that term. But anyway, so we started to adopt this term, not alcoholic, but dependent on chemicals. And this is where that codependent came from, because there was originally this term co-alcoholic. That was the original term. And I feel like if you heard the word co-alcoholic, you'd be like, oh, I get what that means. You know, you're the you're the co-pilot to the alcoholism. But then when they changed it from al from alcoholism to a broader term of chemically dependent, they termed it the co-chemical dependent or just shorter, the codependent. So if you really drill that into your head, which I'm guessing you already have <laughs> from this deep dive, you'll never uh, uh, misunderstand codependency to be a synonym for, for dependent personality, right? Because it emerged from the word co-alcoholic, right? All right, so then um, family systems theory comes along, very influential in the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s. And this idea comes forth that it takes a system to have problems in a family and in an individual. So when you have someone who is suffering from an, addic an addiction, you don't just treat the, you know, the symptom bearer, you have to treat the whole system. And so, you know, there was this observation that people suffering from alcoholism would go to inpatient treatment would achieve sobriety, but when they return home, they would start drinking again. And then they go back to inpatient, they'd achieve sobriety, they come back home, they start drinking again. And what they found was that the system was part of the problem. And sometimes the spouse would actually, you know, the codependent, the co-alcoholic, would push the alcoholic to start drinking again. Because maybe there's a fear of the unknown, or they have a codependent personality that, you know, they need to be the overfunctioner, right? Or, and, or they like the alcoholic when they're a little bit more tipsy, right? You know, so 
so they started recognizing, oh, we can't just treat the person with the addiction. We have to, we have to treat the whole family, particularly the other, the, the spouse. So groups started to emerge, fast forwarding to, you know, like the 60s, 70s, 80s. And we have these, uh, well, before we get to the groups, or no, sorry, we have Al-Anon. So Al-Anon emerges as a group for quote-unquote codependence to help people with uh, reducing their enabling to self-protection, loving detachment, this kind of thing. Then a book comes out, 1983, Janet uh, Wojtitz, um, uh writes a book called Adult Children of Alcoholics, very famous book, sold 2 million copies, was on the New York Times bestseller list for 48 weeks, and it discussed codependency quite a bit. Adult Children of Alcoholics, very famous book. Then another book, a couple years later, 1985, Robin Norwood, book called Women Who Love Too Much, uh, sold 2.5 million copies, and started the 12-step groups for women, quote-unquote, addicted to men, which I talked about earlier. Women Who Love Too Much, very famous book. Um, there was a time in my earlier career where every therapist I knew when I went into their office, they always had this book on their shelf. There were certain, you know, there's always Man's Search for Meaning and maybe a Yalom book on there, and then there was always, like, Women Who Love Too Much by Robin Norwood. It resonated with a lot of people. Next year, 1986, another very famous book, Melody Beattie, wrote a book called Codependent No More, sold 8 million copies. And this is when codependency became a household word. In the 80s, there was a lot of, it was a trend, really, of self-help. That's when it all kind of got started um, in earnest. And also of uh, a certain brand of feminism was emerging and a certain... uh, I don't know, normalization of alcoholism and and suffering, really. Same year, 1986, the book that I referred to earlier by Tim and Cermak, Diagnosing and Treating Codependence, A Guide for Professionals. This is one of the first clinical authors to take it seriously. And again, as I said, in this book, Tim and Cermak proposed it be included in the DSM, and it was denied. Then Codependence Anonymous emerges in nineteen in the nineteen eighties, similar to Alcoholics Anonymous, twelve step group to help those who are struggling with codependency, and it's still running groups. I I looked it up on the internet; they, they have groups running in Seattle today. Codependence Anonymous. Um, more lately, the concept in the you know throughout the nineties and the aughts, the concept of codependency has been broadened in a good way to include, as I've been talking about behavioral addictions, personality disorders, impulse problems. And then the internet comes along and it becomes massively misunderstood because the internet is the internet. Um, I, I looked up a YouTube uh, video. I just, I just Googled on YouTube codependency. And uh, one of the first videos that came up is uh, eight signs. You may be codependent by psych to go who has 8 million subscribers and throughout the video, they are just describing dependent personality disorder, which is frustrating. Another video, YouTube, uh, titled What is Codependency by Katie Morton, who has 1 million subscribers. And she actually gets it right. Uh, the video is very brief, I will say, <laughs> um, compared to my, you know, four-hour deep dive, of course. But, 
But you know that's her style. Katie Morton makes these you know real brief videos, but but she gets it right. Uh, all right, let's end with treatment. So treatment for codependency, traditionally, and I would recommend that people consider group support for exploration. You know, Al-Anon, etc. Maybe even a codependency anonymous group. I'm, I'm not sure. I think I, I'm pretty sure Al-Anon directly addresses what I'm calling codependency, or at least the flare-ups of codependency. Um, you know, group support can be very helpful. 12-step groups can be very helpful. The support, the normalization, the inspiration from others to have boundaries, loving detachment. It's free. You know, these support groups are free. And it's, you know, ongoing, regular help in almost every town. So uh, Al-Anon, Codependence Anonymous, uh, adult children of alcoholics groups can be good for people. Uh, you know, it's a good thing to explore. It's not for everyone, and, and every group is different, you know. So uh, that's what I would recommend to someone if they were like, I have codependent. But really, it comes out of therapy because we're talking about a personality disorder, right? If we're just talking about you're only over-functioning, but you don't have a codependent personality, then Al-Anon can be great, right? But if you suffer from actual codependent personality and you have the schemas that generate that personality disorder and that those distortions, therapy is really the only answer uh, with someone that understands this personality. And you got to work on changing those schemas. So, and the two pillars to change in therapy or in any circumstance is one, awareness, and two, corrective experiences, right? So one, you have to, if you have codependent personality, you have to become aware of your schemas, your reactivity, your distortions. You have to try to exert some power over it, but you got to become aware of it first. You know, you have to admit the problem, if you will. And two, a corrective experience is in which you learn that it's not your job. You don't have to. You have self-worth, you know, outside of you solving some dysfunctional person's problems that you deserve to focus on yourself, that you're not selfish if you focus on the self. I remember treating someone with codependent personality and uh, there were two things that she would often say and it became such a routine for us to address. One is she, you know, she felt like she was being mean all the as she was being assertive and healthy with her underfunctioning husband. She would often say, I kind of feel like I'm being mean. And she wasn't being mean. She was actually being healthy. And in fact, she might even be uh, healthy to her husband, you know, and not codependent with him, right? The other thing she would say is she was being selfish. She thought it, as she became more healthy, she would, you know, say, I think I'm being mean. I, I feel like I'm being mean. I feel like I'm being selfish because she was bumping up against these schemas that was saying, if you do anything for yourself at all, you're being selfish. And if you push back, because she was a helpful codependent. If you push back on someone's uh, under-functioning and sort of leave them to, to their own devices, you're being mean and selfish. And what I would tell her as, you know, I was trying to be as convincing as possible, and I, I feel like I was only halfway successful, was that my observation of you is that as you feel like you're being mean, you know, on a scale from 1 to 10 where 10 is very being very mean and one is being very selfless, right? We're trying to get you to a five where you have balance. You're like a three right now, <laughs> but you feel like you're a seven. And we would actually go over that. You know, we, it's like, where do you think you are on the mean selfless scale? 
you know, she's, I kind of feel like I'm an eight. And I'd be like, actually, you're still a three. You, there's a, a long way to go until you actually get to a place where I would observe you are treating yourself fairly. And so we, you know, it was hard, you know, because this is the distortion of a personality disorder is you don't see the world in a rational way, in a healthy way, in a balanced way. And so you're just like, as I become more, um, you know, taking, focusing on myself, uh, how do I get out of this feeling that I'm, I'm abusing people around me, you know, (laughs) um, other things that, you know, I do in therapy with codependence is assertiveness training. You know, I often will talk about the three phases of assertiveness. One is being a doormat. Um, and the final phase is being assertive where you're, uh, asserting your needs while, you know, considering other people's feelings. The second step is kind of like the terrible twos where you are overly selfish and saying no to everything. And so sometimes there would be a phase like that with codependence because to some extent you could almost think of codependent recovery as going through the phases of life. You know, uh, you're, you're allowed to enter your terrible twos, your terrible fours where you say no to everything and, and you're given that corrective experience that you deserved when you were young that you didn't get before you can emerge into mature assertiveness. Also emotional regulation, which is very important. So the codependent person is anxious. They might not know it though. Um, They might feel rational. Actually, a lot of codependent, all codependent people prior to awareness and recovery feel like their anxiety about the underfunctioner is a complete, is completely rational. And uh, so we have to work a lot on becoming aware of that emotion. You know what? Let's 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 name it. It's fear. Let's also evaluate it and let's regulate it. And uh, you know, regulating it through control or advising or taking over and meshing with the underfunctioner uh, might kind of temporarily uh, reduce your anxiety, but it's not going to long term help, right? Because it keeps the underfunctioner underfunctioning, which I haven't really talked about much yet, um, if at all. That you know, codependency can have an effect on the underfunctioner to keep them underfunctioning. You know, that's why. Uh, anyway, I think I've already got that. Um, connecting with the self is a big part of codependency treatment. Uh, getting to know your emotions, getting to know your needs, getting to know how you feel—that can take a long time. Finding mutually fulfilling relationships or cultivating them, you know, and I've worked with codependent people uh, where they go to individual therapy with me and then they go to couples therapy, maybe with a, another therapist and they work on the overfunctioner underfunctioner dynamic. Uh, so it's not always that you have to divorce or break up or distance yourself from the underfunctioner. Um you can stay with them if you choose to, but it's a bumpy road and it has a lot of bumps, <laughs> you know, like the uh, one case I'm thinking of the, the codependent person was with a narcissistic person and the narcissistic person was, was pretty abusive and the codependent person didn't want to leave the narcissistic person. So they spent years in various forms of therapy, uh, recovering from both of their issues the codependency and the narcissism and uh, the, you know, 
the harm from the narcissistic person didn't end, but the codependent person was okay with that. They're like, well, you know, this, uh, we've been together for a long time. It's, this is a big deal to me. I, I, I don't want to throw away this relationship, you know? Um, but where's the line, right? Uh, as a therapist, a big question that I had throughout that time was, is the codependent person just um, putting themselves at the back burner? Or are they making uh, a volitional independent choice to to salvage, you know, which, which they were doing? You know, I, I just never really knew the answer to that. It was, and there was no way for me to know. But, but I did create the question mark. You know, I, I would ask those kinds of questions to the codependent person and, they would, uh, you know, ponder, but eventually say, no, I, I, I'm pretty sure this comes from within. I, I want, I'm not staying connected to the underfunctioner out of desperation. I, I think I just value this, you know, my family. You might also do family of origin work as a part of therapy for codependency, meaning that you go back to your parents and your siblings and you, you wrestle with some issues, you know, that can be facilitated through therapy or even just family therapy. I've done a lot of that with people. You might do a lot of couple and family therapy because codependency is a very interactive personality disorder. The therapy can be long-term typically as it could be with any uh, personality disorder. Um, it might involve breaking up, you know, um, I, I would say... Uh, let's say most of the codependents just off the top of my head that I've treated of people that were married would and eventually get a divorce, uh, particularly because the underfunctioner wasn't in therapy. It can involve remaining enmeshed and dysfunctional for years before the codependent is ready to draw a boundary. That's, you know, for you clinicians out there, when you're treating a codependent person, don't rush, you know, the client's going to, they're going to take their time. And, and it could be literally five years before the codependent person decides to draw a boundary with the underfunctioner. It just takes time. Uh, it can involve a phase of addiction for, of addiction for the codependent person themselves. As they stop focusing on the underfunctioner, they might um, enter a phase of, of addiction themselves. Um, just as a, it's a phase, it's the hope that they have to get through in order to emerge on the other side. All right. Well, that is that. Um, what could I summarize here? So let's get back to the type. So we have the helpful codependent who is, you know, very micromanaging, very enabling, self-sacrificial, anxious, hypervigilant, might be nagging, might be interfering. Then you have the controlling codependent. So this person is similar to the helpful, but more aggressive and more invasive and more critical. Then you have the chameleon codependent who just becomes like the underfunctioner and but also is very focused on trying to help someone with a problem, right? Um, and defines themselves as I will sacrifice myself to save someone else from their self-destruction, you know, because that's the purpose of my life. That's, that's why I'm on this planet. That's what I, that's what I was told was my only worth and the only way I can get closest by the way. 
I mean, that's another kind of core schema is not only is it if I don't rescue someone from their problems, everything will fall apart. It's if I don't rescue someone from their problems, I'll never have attachment security. You know, the only way I can gain, I can gain attachment security and safety is if I'm solving someone else's problems. All right. Well, I kind of feel like my throat is falling apart because I've been talking for four hours. Um, let me go over the definition again. Let's see. Let's see if it holds up. Sometimes by the time I get to the end of the deep dive, I'm like, oh, I don't know if my definition holds up. Let's let's read the shorter one. Codependent personality is characterized by the need to manage someone else who has an ongoing destructive behavior problem. Yeah, I think that holds up. The longer definition. Codependent personality is characterized by the development of schemas that defensively compel the individual to enmesh with and uphold the behavior of someone with a chronic behavioral problem such as addiction, irresponsibility, or overfunctioning. You know, I think I'm, I'm going to add um, addiction, irresponsibility, personality disorder, or impulse control issues. <laughs> okay. All right, people. What a journey. These deep dives are always such a thing. You know, because I sit down weeks ago and I'm like, okay, let's take a couple of days. And then like all my waking hours are spent like thinking, you know, I'll I'll be falling asleep at night thinking about ideas and I'll I'll get an idea and I'll pop up and I'll get my phone out and I'll take a couple more notes and stuff. So it's it's kind of a thing to finish it. But follow-up emails. Can't wait to we read your emails. Um, tell me your stories, you know. Who were you the codependent one? Did you know someone that was codependent? Did you have a codependent parent? Let me know. And everyone out there, please take care of yourself because you deserve it. You really, really do.